Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, Stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Standing for Truth. I am your host, Donnie, and we are back for day two of our important and heroic two-day event on flood boundaries. If you have not yet seen day one or session one, please make sure to check it out. I'm glad uh, to see that it's getting a lot of great feedback. Please share around this content as we know the truth is so incredibly important. Now, in uh, part one, we touched on some very uh, critical information, and that's why I want to encourage uh, anybody who has not yet seen it, please check it out. And uh, that section was organized in a way that would kind of set the foundation for today. And since this is day two of, of our event here, I'm just going to get right into it. I've got Joseph Hubbard and John Mackay, the creation guy here with me, and we have a lot to uh, get through today, and I am pumped. Uh, before I hand it to Joe and John, as always, we are uh, going to be interactive with the chat, and so uh, if you've got questions that are relevant to the topic, of course, just make sure you're tagging me at Standing for Truth. And that way I won't miss them. Okay, gentlemen, John, Joe, uh, glad to have you back. How are you, uh, gentlemen, today? Joe, you can answer that first. Um, I'm, I'm all right. It was a late night last night, but I'm, um, I'm up and ready to go again. And uh, I feel more sorry for John, who, uh, I mean, I had our first chat at about three o'clock in the morning with him. That's UK time. But I know that he must have been up at four o'clock in the morning in order to chat with me. So we've been going backwards and forwards all day, making sure we've got the content as good as we can. Uh, like anything, this is such an enormous topic that we're not going to get through everything, even in two whole sessions. Right. But we thought it was really important to, in our first session yesterday, actually lay down those foundations we have to go back through the history because, well, even as we were chatting to John today, uh, the realisation that the entire of the geologic column is really based off of British Empire history is so important to understand when you actually start applying it to the real world. So that's some of the stuff that we're going to go in today. But John, do you want to uh, start us off with uh, what we're, what we're going to be start dealing with in terms of strata? And even our regular humorous George, we got him out of bed at 4 a.m. to ask for a link. So it's been an early morning, uh, late night all the way around. And yes, the point that Joseph made is a very unknown point, but it was first brought to my attention by Professor Derek Ager. You know, uh, yesterday, Joseph held up this book here. Uh, okay, this one here dealing with the new catastrophism, the one that he says creationists are not allowed to use this book. But he's such a, I mean, he's one of my heroes, I'll be honest, because this new catastrophism basically says a couple of things. One is the early catastrophists, he didn't use the word Christian, he didn't use the word biblical, he could have because that's how they used to be referred to. The early geologists who were catastrophists are more objective, are more scientific 
than the later uniformitarians who never see anything they're really talking about. So when you have a look, if you think of a process that's going to take millions of years to happen, you are not talking science. If you're talking about things that can be catastrophic, like tsunamis or floods or whatever, they occur within a lifespan, time you can actually observe. And of course, he goes on further in his books, right from the, the stratigraphic column, one of the first books he wrote up to the present, making a very interesting and very unpopular point. The current geological column, if it started in China, if the Chinese were the first, I mean, in 500 AD, when they started reporting smelly fishes, remember that one I showed you yesterday, when they started reporting smelly fishes, if they'd have taken geology seriously and built up their own geological column, it would have looked totally different than the one, well, he likes to say, it's really a relic of the British Empire. Now, that's an aspect that most people don't even consider, that politics and, and conquering countries actually produces a structure that's supposedly factual history in geology. Okay, let me give you a couple of illustrations of this point before I take off on two areas, and then we'll have a one Q&A, and then we'll have a Joseph and the second Q&A. Okay, I bought in a new fossil today. Let's see if you can see it. Can you see right there in the middle? It's a bit hard to get focused. Can you spot that, Joseph? You're my feedback there. I can just about see it, yes. Okay. Now, that's a trilobite. Um, it's from just on the edge of the Cambrian, pre-Cambrian boundary here in Australia. It's lovely pink colour. It gets all sorts of interesting pink iron-type minerals in it. And you say, when you came to Australia, how did you know where the Cambrian was? Well, by that time, it was defined simply as where life started. And so when you found rocks that had layers in and they then had fossils, you actually had to call them pre-Cambrian. Why did you call it Cambrian in the first place? Because that was the rocks along the border of England and Wales. Why Cambrian? Because the Romans couldn't speak Welsh. And Cimbria or Cumbria, which is the same word, which simply means comrades, was the name of the people who lived there. So because it was found in the, the region of Cimbria or Wales, it takes the name of that area. Likewise, when you look at this fossil, okay, this one here, now you can see that because I can see that's nice and focused as well. I got that in Germany in the Solnhofen. And look, I came back to Australia and I went to my garden and I got that and put it on front of the fossil. Now the fossil and the living creature are exactly the same. Um, they're cycads, by the way. They used to grow in Germany, too cold now. They still grow in Australia, living fossil. But in the Solhofen, Solhofen, uh, old German saint's house. But what's the name of the area? Well, that's the one we spoke about yesterday where Alexander von Humboldt was trying to solve a problem. The rocks here in North America, the rocks down there in this part, the rocks over here in Germany all have a similar fossil composition. Rocks in Germany that he was familiar with, von Humboldt, uh, Jurassic. Oh, no, he invented that concept. The rocks in the Jura Mountains. Again, Cambria, a place. Jura, a place. Nothing to do with time. We know that particularly because von Humboldt wrote his own biography and he's a six-day Noah's Flood creationist and a world-famous geographer. It didn't interfere one bit with his ability to collect facts in fact, it made it so much easier for the rest of us. You go one step further. Okay. Now, an Englishman was actually sent to Russia 
and uh, he, he was supposed to name things and help the czar out. Well, he went to an area around the Perm, the town of Perm. So he called those rocks Permian. But then after that, you have Triassic rocks. This is one of them. Triassic, three colours. Now, if you notice so far, there's nothing to do with millions of years. The geologic column does not depend on evolution at all. That's an interpretation put upon it. So is the vast amounts of time. You see, my background area deals a lot with coal. Can you see all the layers? Yesterday, we spoke about layers. And whilst I appreciate people who wrote in and said, uh, the only way you get time going sideways is if you tip the rocks on their side. Well, in reality, these layers have been deposited. But they did give rise, once you accept millions of years, that this layer got there before that layer, got there before that layer. Oh, Triassic coal, Triassic three colours, nothing to do with evolution, nothing to do with millions of years. But when you have a look at this rock here, if you believe that layer got there first, this layer got there last, then you come up with a secondary theory. The rock on the bottom has been there longer. The longer it's been there, the higher quality coal it will be. And therefore, you look at the rocks and you say, well, if it's young coal, it's expected to be brown coal. If it's old coal, it'll be higher quality. Which reminds me that I was asked to address the British Coal Board uh, in Newcastle because one of the students there had a problem. He was doing his PhD. What was his problem? I keep getting results my professor won't accept. And the boss who knew me said, can you talk to him because I've read your paper on coalification, which says it's not time that makes coal, it's process. And the process is not related to the depth of burial, it's related to the amount of clay in the coal. And so as we went through this guy's paper, I said, get out of your head that the rocks at the bottom are older. Get out of your head that the rocks at the top are younger. Because you see, I was only developing that thought that came from Adrian and a few others and my old professor at Queensland University that the rocks get old sideways. And therefore, it mattered what was deposited in the coal. So we went through and he said, I, I said to him, what results are you getting that your professor doesn't like? He said, I keep getting high quality coal, low quality coal, medium grade. And he said, it's got nothing to do with the depth of the coal. I said, you're right. It doesn't. I got exactly the same in Australia. I've given papers to the, to the, the coal people down there in Newcastle. And, and so what you'll find is that I said, here, go back, get to your coal, sample it, and measure the percentage of kaolinite clay in it. And I'll guarantee you'll find this relationship. The quality of coal, nothing to do with depth, nothing to do with age, everything to do with how much clay, how much kaolin clay it's got into it. And, you know, a few months later, his boss contacted me and said, hey, he's been approved. His professor has finally caved in. Okay, now all of my thoughts were based on the fact that the coal is the result of a process, not time. The process depends on the chemicals that were in it, not the millions of years that have been buried. The millions of years depended on Steno. The bottom layer got there first. Yes, I know Steno. We made that point yesterday. He was a Christian. He firmly believed in creation. He believed in Noah's flood. But without running any tests, he came up with the following thoughts about fossils and about layers. Let me take you through where we got to yesterday. Put my slide up, please, George. I mean, Donnie, sorry, George. Um, okay, there's <laughs> our, good. yeah, there, there is our logo. And I make no apologies for saying that we created that. It didn't happen by itself. So every one of you knows the evidence of creation. 
but many people don't get to travel like I do and see all the layers. Here we are in Greece. Do you see the layers there? Even Steno, as he traveled around the Middle East, would have been able to see layers. Okay, by the time you get over there to Canada, wow, aren't they pretty? And in our heads today is Steno's idea. You mightn't have studied geology, but I'll guarantee if you stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you looked down, you would automatically think the rock layer half a mile down is the oldest one here, the oldest fossil bearing layer anyway. The bottom layer formed first. And then you go to Japan and you automatically think they're nice and horizontal, not much distortion at all. That's how they were laid down originally. And then you can even join Joseph on, on the coast of Norfolk and you can see red beds and white beds. You're at Hun Stanton. Joseph might want to talk a bit about this later. And of course, by the time you put all of this in your head, you've got Hun Stanton, an old name from the really, really early days. The S-T-A-N bit relates to minerals. Huns, I believe, relates to the Germanic people who came there, but Joseph can comment on that. But by the time you get to Joseph going to university, they're all labeled. Carstone, look at that, red chalk, lower chalk. People asked yesterday about chalk formation. Great questions. Joseph might want to comment further because I got this diagram off him. Well, look at that. At the top, 0.99 million years of rock was, was forming, it took to form that layer. The next one down, 101 million years. Next one, 108 million years old. So using Steno, we've now got one layer on top of the other. We've got the fossils laid down way before each other. And then you accumulate the history of life and you now add times and dates and eventually the theory of evolution. I'll make one more point before I go any further. The first attack on Christianity was not on the subject of creation. All the people who put in these millions of years and put in these layers and put in these names and the history of the world were not even thinking about evolution. Sino didn't think of evolution. He came up with the bottom layer got there first. All of the rest has come later till finally they threw out creation and then the creator and then it, it, it made Christianity collapse, basically. Okay. You therefore reach the conclusion that Steno did. If layers are inclined, it means they were tipped. So walking along the south coast of England, there's the oldest at the bottom. There's the youngest at the top. And it had to be tipped to get there. Now, all of this, whether we like it or not, is the result of thinking Steno's way. Of course, you move a bit further to the west and you end up Look at the, the mess of rocks there. By the time you get over to Cornwell, the messing has theoretically sort of contorted, pressurized, cooked. You have almost metamorphosed rock. Or metamorphic, we haven't used that word so far. It simply means middle form. You have sediments, rocks that have sat down. Metamorphic, rocks that are middle. They're in between that and igneous rocks, which have totally messed. Now, one of the thing verses that we love in creation research is test everything. Now, I don't care if 800 Christians out of 100 believe in millions of years old. They're not my guarantee of truth. Uh, it's got nothing to do with what Christians believe. It's got everything to do with what you ought to believe because Jesus Christ says so. You need a standard of truth, and it can't just be your theory of men. So if you want to test anything, come with us. Remember we talked yesterday about our strata experiments? I think that was machine number eight. We've made these from everywhere, 18 inches long, 
all the way up to that 10 feet or three meters long that we're using now. There's my grandson, Ben, one of the young guys from church involved in, in industry. Can you see they're pouring sediment in? Pretty, pretty primitive sort of construction. And, and we had to eliminate the impact our scoop, shovel, dump, scoop, shovel, dump had on the actual results. Yep, you're right. Test everything means making sure you get rid of everything that could interfere with it, except for the one factor you want to check. Of course, as we were running that test, because it was at night, you see the sediment moving in from the right-hand side to the left. You see, we learned a lot of things that we didn't expect to learn. Well, we were taking photos. Young Ben, my grandson, he was taking pictures. So he put a, a, a rear light in, a backlight, just to see what it would do. Now, can, can you see something? There's no sediment there, no sand, no mud, no fossils, but you can actually see layers already in the water. Now, one of the things we'd heard, and I watched it ever since I was a kid because I love submarine movies. The submarine captain, say in Hunt for Red October, would go down looking for another layer. Why another layer? Well, if the water is moving in a different direction, which it can, if the water is colder or hotter, it will mess up all the radar. So water itself behaves in layers, but I'd never seen it demonstrated that way. Ah, so by the time we finish yesterday and by the time we finish today, you need to know the following about water because most people are thinking the big cup of water, you shake it up and down and it falls down, relates to gravity and things like that. But in reality, as I said yesterday, all moving water, the cold sediment actually moves sideways. So the sediments have no choice but to form sideways. But why do they form in layers? Why not just one big muck? Well, you've just seen the actual layers are already in the water. Any submarine captain could have told you that. You see them in the air too, flying in a plane, and all of a sudden you'll hit another layer and your plane will go up and down and your captain goes looking for a smoother layer. Air itself behaves as a liquid. The layers are already in the air. The layers are already in the water. Notice I've got that point, strata don't depend on the width, length, depth or shape of flow. We were amazed. We started out with an 18-inch, half a metre long strata tank and we got a set of results. So I said to the guys, let's double the length. So we made it up to one metre and a bit and we got exactly the same results. So I said, well, let's make it twice as wide and we got the same results. So we doubled the length again, two metres, and now we're up to three metres. We have got exactly the same results every time. So I'm no water engineer, so I called up a water engineer that we knew of, and I said, listen, here's what I'm getting. It doesn't matter what shape, doesn't matter what depth, doesn't matter what length this is, I always get the same results. He said, every water engineer knows that. I said, well, I'm not a water engineer, I'm just a geologist playing around with water. And he said, the actual properties of the water determine what happens to everything that's in it. It has nothing to do with the width, the length, the shape, um, nothing at all. It is the water properties alone that determine what happens. I bring that up because, you see, people have said uh, Guy Barteau's work only applies to deltas. But you see, if you're a submarine captain, you already know that under the water where there's multiple flows, you have all sorts of resistances and you can actually form a delta underwater without any land boundaries at all. The behaviour purely depends on the type of water that you've got and what its properties are. 
Okay, now that's sort of a brief introduction to where we got to yesterday, plus a little bit. Let's take a practical example. Young Joe and me, where are we? We're on the edge of the Bristol Channel. We are actually going to a place, see where the blue mark is? I love GPS because it can put you plus or minus 10 metres from where you're supposed to be. Um, that can be serious, by the way, because I actually was using it one of the first times and it took me in 10 metres where I wanted to go. Only trouble was the house was nine metres across the river. Blow. The GPS system failed me completely. Here's what's there. Rather well known. Uh, not too well attended these days. Rather hard to get to. See the lovely layers? The red layers, white layers, grey layers? Here's yours truly. Uh, digging up a fossil, rapidly becoming a fossil over the years. And look, it's a scallop shell. No evidence of evolution at all. And these rocks are supposed to be millions of years old. Here we have a field trip of people on a cold day. Can you see the frost settling on the surface there? Well, what's interesting about this place is they do have, courtesy of the geological associations, a diagram showing the history of this region. And they have the red layers, the green layers, the in blue, etc. And they are all based on Steno. The bottom layer got there first. The top layer got there last. And then they interpret its history. Um, well, here's what they say. This is a drowned desert. The bottom layer represents a time of drying out. And of course, you can follow these beds for ages. And Joseph and I have got some fabulous dinosaur fossils from, from this region here. But of course, I'm old enough to have been to the British Natural History Museum when they had the geological publications there. And I got my own copy many, many years ago. Um, you see that red line? That's a sort of straight, straight line through the section we're going to be looking at. And the same book includes the cross section. <clears throat> there you are. The pink layer goes down in a U shape and then all the limey rocks follow the suit. And then up in the right middle, you find there's what looks like another boundary has been formed as rocks have cut into it. Now, to the evolutionists, these all formed over millions of years, whether they're limestone or whether they're mudstone, um, or whatever. Okay. Now, when you have a look, when we set our strata machine up, it was really just to see, well, was Steno right? Is the bottom layer getting there first? Watch yesterday's program. It doesn't happen like that. The layers form from upstream to downstream. Watch the stream that I showed you yesterday. That's how it forms in the stream. As a result, what can happen? Well, there's 2019. Mark 10. Just before COVID's about to hit. Mark 10 strata machine. You see the sediment pouring in from the left? Well, a few moments later, we started to watch this. Now, we haven't jiggled the machine. We haven't even changed the water flow. Look what's happening. Now, every one of those were deposited in the same tank uh, with nobody sticking a stick in or anything like that. Do you notice one thing? They're not straight. They're not flat. In fact, we've reached the conclusion Steno needs to be rewritten. Strata does not form parallel to the horizon. Strata forms parallel to whatever direction the current is going to. And you can see, I mean, if you're a geologist, you'd say, well, the top right-hand side, that must have been laid down. Then there must have been a massive set of erosion. Oh, look at that layers in the bottom. That must have been previously laid down flat and then contorted. No, none of that happened at all. We watched it. You see, when you have a look, 
the anticlines and the synclines, that's the ones that bend up, or the ones that bend down were not due to subsidence or to uplift. Now, everything that was taught to me at Queensland University comes under challenge at this point. And my dear old Prof. Alan Wilson, who first stimulated my conversation over 40 years ago, who said, rocks form sideways in the Grand Canyon. Man, I'm pretty sure he'd be reasonably happy with these experiments because it's not just Stino's theory applied, it's let get out there and run a test. So if any of you want to support the research we do, do it. Go to creationresearch.net. We could do, after two, two and a half years of COVID, we could do with every bit of support that, that you can supply. All right? Do you see that? Because that's the next thing that happened. The water continued. You haven't seen the water stop at all. It pours over the top. And then it starts to form a new, well, synclines go down, anticlines go up. Look at that. Now, it's not forming parallel to the horizon. It's forming parallel to whatever direction the current is going in. And there's how it ends up. It fills it up and moves on. Now, can I encourage you? Most of you are thinking Grand Canyon. Think the rock layers got there on the bottom first. And all the distortion is due to earth movement. Well, all the distortion there has nothing to do with earth movement at all. Now, the point is very simple, all right? There's our pattern in our strata machine. Now, we didn't expect this to happen. M many of our results have been absolutely unplanned for, unexpected, but really exciting nevertheless. There's the book with the sediment at the bottom, okay? Now, the one at the bottom took millions of years, according to the authors of the textbook. The one at the top, we watched that form, in 20 minutes. Now, even if you want to expand the scale um, to this, make a strata machine as big as the cross section, I'll guarantee it's not going to take hundreds of millions of years to form this section. Oh, and yes, we'd love to make bigger and bigger strata machines. And if, if we had another day, we'll show you how big we've got to now. But there's one real point. Because the engineer, the water engineer, and every water engineer you can consult will tell you exactly this. The results have nothing to do with the size of the machine. They have nothing to do with the width of the machine or the depth of the machine. They have nothing to do with anything except the properties of water. So it doesn't matter whether your strata tank is 20 kilometers long, 10 kilometers long, or three meters long. The properties of water remain the same. So the results are not due to time. They're actually due to the process. And the process remains exactly the same in a big strata machine or a little strata machine. So for those of you who came up with such nonsense as saying you have to turn the whole rock layer sideways to get things going from left to right, you're actually talking nonsense. You don't know what you're talking about because we've done the experiments. Okay, put it on the scale of Noah's flood and I'll guarantee you had lots of flume tanks, particularly at the start of the flood. As it's tearing between big hills, you have a flume tank. As it's tearing across mountains, you have a delta forming as the water on the other side becomes a barrier to progress. And the point we made yesterday, which I'll continue on for just a little bit, is that, hang, it's not the evidence which contradicts the word of God. Oh, well, that's where uh, Joe got to yesterday. It's the fact that men don't want to believe in Noah's flood. My first week at Queensland University, and I can't forget it because I wasn't a creationist then. I wasn't a Noah's flood man then. I hardly knew anything about those. The professor said, we're not going to discuss any such catastrophic rubbish. And he mentioned the flood. He mentioned creation. And I thought, why not? 
to me, as I keep telling, it was like wet paint, don't touch. And you know what kids are like? I have touched. I've dug deep. And you find the truth actually is far more on the side of a big global flood than it is on slow millions of years. What about some of the other formations? Well, here's last Monday's results. Because uh, we thought, well, we're blasting water in from one side and it produces nice layers. But the Bible talks about fountains of the deep. What would happen if we actually started blowing the water up from the bottom at the same time as we would formed it going sideways? Can you see that result there? The interesting thing, of course, is you have what we geologists would call a rift valley. And it's filled in again to give you a lovely flat plain like you find at the top of the Rift Valley in Israel. Or you can come to Esk Valley and see the strata on either side with the fossils in and then a big sunken rift. Time? Well, about four seconds. How about this one? Now, I never thought I would see sediment that had just been formed, sat there for maybe a half a minute, and then the water started coming up from underneath. Look what the layers have done. Oh, many of them have retained that consistency. They've bent, they've distorted, and in fact, some of them kept straight edges. Now, I would have thought that if you blast water up like the fountains of the deep, that the Bible does talk about the fountains of the deep, by the way. You want Noah's flood? Noah's flood is the second time the world's been underwater. The first time was the first three days of creation. And then the world was uncovered. Water ran off the earth. It ran into the earth. You would have ended up with vast quantities of water underneath. So during the flood, there's plenty of water to come out from underneath. Look at those straight edges, by the way, and the blocks. Wow. Would you have thought that sand that had been deposited, that minerals that had been deposited, the black stuff are heavy mineral sands, by the way, and, and, and if that had been sitting there and then the water comes up, I would have thought it would have gone to mush, but it didn't. In fact, look at that. Now, you're probably getting close to the coast of Cornwall if you look at things like that, or some of the mountains in Switzerland where you get all sorts of interesting distortion. Now, when you have a look, can I encourage you, if you want to support what we do, support Danny keep, his, Danny keep his work going and George, but in reality, all of this research, and we're going to do one more thing on this Friday. We're going to actually, well, one geologist, I sent him these results, and he said, all the best try to interpret this in three dimensions. And I thought, that's a good idea. So on Friday, we'll redo all of this and chop down through it in three dimensions like we've done before we distorted it completely. Okay, one last thing before we take our first question time. We'll let Joe have a few comments first. Okay, there's Jurassic Ark. Remember Jurassic? Like the rocks in the Jura Mounds. Concept by Alexander von Humboldt, a six-day creationist who believed in Noah's flood. In fact, you find the majority of the names until you get to the end of the Cretaceous are invented by six-day creationists. They're invented by people who believed in Noah's flood. So please don't tell me Noah's flood and creation puts a big stumbling block in the road of geology. No, Derek Age would disagree with you. The early catastrophists, he wasn't bold enough to call them Christians. He wasn't bold enough to call them believers in Noah's flood. The early catastrophists were better empiricists, better observers than the modern uniformitarians. Okay, here's where we are in Australia. You go to Jurassic Ark. It's on the East Coast near Gympie. What are we going to do in this section here? We're going to look at how you should read the geology of the world. 
what glasses should you wear? And I say glasses because, you see, most of you haven't even travelled the world once. I've been blessed by travelling many times, but I haven't even been to every continent at all. I've been to many of them. I've been right up to the, the north of Alaska. I've been down south of Australia. I've, I've been, well, I haven't, I haven't been everywhere like the old song goes. But, you see, we built Jurassic Ark to help students learn how to see things through a biblical set of glasses because the Bible says the God of the Bible actually knows everything, made all things. And remember that verse we read yesterday, Psalm 29? He sits as king of the flood forever. And his power is what enables his people to be blessed with peace. What are they looking at? One of our cacti gardens, one of our succulent gardens where all these thorns are pretty awful. Oh, if you think God made thorns to be pretty awful, think again. Because when these first hatch out as thorns, they're lovely and soft. And only as the environment dries out do they go rotten hard. Okay, question. What's the biblical history of thorns? Because there's my fossil thorns. Yes, you should see these in museums, but I'll guarantee you haven't. What do you do with fossil thorns? Where did I find these ones? Well, over here in Nova Scotia. And look at this. Hey, definitely a set of fossil thorns. In fact, I found them underneath a coal seam right there on the east coast of Nova Scotia in Canada. So when you have a look at it, I found these thorns. I found that one there. Look how sharp that is. It's covered in coal. The, the outside's gone coaly. You can walk up to the top of the hill and you can actually see a present day plant with thorns. You can see a fossil with thorns. Now, you can argue whether they're spines or prickles or whatever, uh, but the average person says, like a rose, these are, these are thorns. Actually, a rose has got prickles. Did you know that botanically? That's how silly the argument gets sometimes. Okay, most people guess these are fossil thorns, but they don't get round to answering this question. I'll be honest, I've only come across a couple of museums with fossil thorns in them, most hidden away, and almost none as good as the ones that we've got in our creation research fossil collection. Okay, we want you to try and say God was there, we weren't. John Mackay wasn't there, right? He hasn't even traveled the whole of the planet, but he does have something you don't have. He has fossil thorns. What's the biblical picture on thorns? Here it is. God said to Adam, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you will not eat of it, the ground is cursed for your sake, until you eat of it all the days of your life, and it will bring forth thorns. Okay. Did you notice that thorns, most thorns, when they start, are soft? I mean, thorns on roses are actually degenerate. They're like cancers. But the thorns on the cactus are actually soft to start with. The environment hardens them up. Now, are you willing to be um, very provocative to yourself? The Bible is emphatic that God made roses good. The Bible is emphatic that there were no hard, nasty thorns. The Bible is emphatic that the God who made the world made it good. There was no dead things in the fossil record. There was no fossil record. Okay, challenge. This rock formed after Adam sinned. I mean, you say, how do you know those thorns were hard? Very simple. I pointed out before, they have coal on them. When you dig them up first, you have to peel the coal off. Now, the coal is not just a layer of coal. It's around the actual leaf. It's up the thorns. The only time you get coal is when you have sufficient thickness of wood to actually produce coal. You want to produce uh, 
a material that goes to coal, you can't do it with seaweed. Um, well, there is one bed of seaweed that's sort of a brown coal in Sweden, but in reality, it doesn't make the hard, shiny coal that you're used to. Okay, here's the implication. The word carboniferous, that's what it's called in Canada. Uh, you Americans call it Pennsylvanian. Um, it just simply means found in Pennsylvania. Mississippi means found in Mississippi. Uh, these have nothing to do with millions of years. Carboniferous was invented by Reverend Coney Bear in the 1822-1830, and it simply means full of coal, full of carbon. In the textbooks, these rocks are labelled 345 to 280 million years of age. The authority, modern geology. Biblical authority, now here you Christians who are struggling with all this, you have to make a choice. You non-Christians, you may have already rejected what the Bible has to say. It will still apply to you because the Bible is emphatic. Your judgment matters for nothing on judgment day. God said to Adam, you disobey me, it will bring forth thorns and thistles. Ah, so what do you reckon? Those layers in Nova Scotia are 245, 230 million years old, or are they actually younger than Adam? Hmm. That raises this question. If you go by Steno, the geological strata is the history of life on Earth. Now, let's go to this place because there's a, a diagram of my, my discovery over there with a few more layers added at the top and bottom. Uh, you want to go and see this? You can go to Wasoon Bluff. Why did I go there? Because I could walk easily on the beach to get there. But I went there because it was significant. In 1986, more than 100,000 bones were found in this deposit. What were the bones? Okay, here they are. Dinosaurs, crocodiles, sharks, lizards and fish. Okay, stop. Do you think they all live together? No, the fact is they're all dead together. And if you're looking for evidence of a flood deposit, then you're looking for creatures that automatically would not live together, but yet they actually are found together. Lizards, well, a few live in the water. Sharks definitely don't live on the dry land, unless you're talking about real estate agents or something like that. Point. Geological strata are not the history of life on Earth. Geological strata actually only represent where things are dead. Did you catch that? If you're going to make the geological column a history, at the very best, it's a history of where things are dead, not when they died. You might even say it's an order. At the best, it's an order of how you are finding them, not an order based on what's real history. That's why Derek Age was emphatic. If all this started in China, their history of based on their rocks will be different than the one that really, well, the geologic column, whether you like it or not, does not represent American history. Even though you've thrown Pennsylvania and Mississippi in, it represents the British Empire, and you need to come to grips with that. All right, put it diagrammatically. There's my trilobite. There's the thorn fossils just underneath the coal layer. Just above there, yes, you can find dinosaur footprints. Yes, I have a cast of one of those. Wow, baby dinosaur footprints. He was hatching out, walking across the mud, and kazump. Hmm. You want to interpret the geologic column as Steno et al. right down to the present uh, does? Well, here's the only conclusion you can reach. If you think that's an order of time, then if dinosaur strata are found above the thorn layers, okay, are you ready for it? Dinosaur fossils formed after Adam's sin. Why? 
Perhaps you didn't see that coming, or perhaps you're smart enough to realize it was. Now, at this point, I'll be honest, if I was giving this lecture to a geological conference, the roof would fall in, the noise would blow the windows out, because I'll be honest, if I mention Adam, that makes the earth only six or 7,000 years old. It makes Noah's flood a real event. And well, can you please check the age of all these rocks in your textbooks? But do one thing I learned from an old gentleman. Get the textbook from 10 years ago. Get the textbook from 20 years ago. Get the textbook from the 1950s. Get it from the 1910s. Get it from the 1880s. And what you find is the geologists of this world don't care how old the rocks are. They only care how young they aren't. Now, I'll say that again so you get it. The geologists of this world, having dismissed creation, having dismissed Noah's flood in reverse order, they don't care how old these rocks are. They keep changing age. They only care how young they aren't. They don't want to be reminded there's a God who created and there's a God who judged. So when you are studying this, can I encourage you? Um, make careful choice. God was there. He's told you what the history of water is. The world was created covered with water. You have to bring that into geological picture. The world was destroyed by water. What would that mean with the water, which is largely falling down to start with, then running off the land? Says so. Filling up everything, the water is going sideways. And it goes sideways yet again at the end of the flood. And then the, the, the dry land appears three months before Noah gets out of the ark. Whammy. What a different history that our encouragement at this point is for you to take off Charles Darwin's glasses and start seeing things God's way. Charles Darwin's glasses were based on Charles Lyell. Charles Lyell's glasses were willingly based on Hutton. Hutton and the others were based on Steno, and Steno claimed to be a Christian, but he messed up big time when he came to ignoring the fact that his whole history with the bottom layer first simply wasn't based on anything he saw at all. And our dismissal of the concept that rock layers form sideways, well, in the road of that is such an ardent adherence to Steno that most of us don't even know it's purely supposition. Can I encourage you to follow that? Yep, John Mackay had to get to the end of his degree, had to be a few years past his degree, had to be lecturing in geology before he started to say, well, hang on, why do I want these vast millions of years? Why do I want the layers one on top of the other? And the only reason was my professor was the one I thought who would mark all of my papers and review all of my stuff. Well, in reality, there's a better judge, a bigger judge, and that's the one who is Christ who came as saviour. That's what Easter's about. Christ who is the creator and Christ who is the coming judge. Now, if you've got any more, you can actually go to uh, our Creation Flood uh, Facts website, go to creationresearch.net and have a think through the whole picture again. Send us emails. Joe, do you want to comment on anything at that point? I think you've done a pretty good job there, John, and I'm sort of taking up the next part where we're looking at um, recognising flood rocks and trying to see if we can start to determine boundaries. Um, because I, we were just talking, John, uh, before this uh, before this presentation about Derek Ager and uh, his rather interesting comment that you can always tell very easily where a boundary starts. It's working out where it finishes. That's the difficult part. Now, the Hunstanton picture you put up, and we'll come back to that a little bit later, 
and talk a little bit about it you know exactly where the chalk starts there's no denying it it's a knife edge along the car stone which is correlated with the upper green sand right of course if you go elsewhere around the world because all the chalk sits on top of the same upper green sand trying to work out where the green sand ends uh, because it can turn up sometimes without the chalk i mean an identical deposit and so you'll find when you're determining boundaries it's not always as easy as a nice big thick black pen and going right there's the boundary of the sequence i mean you mentioned yesterday about the fun it is to go and listen to geological conferences and listen to people argue over what sequence is what and what boundary is what and where does it start and where does it end and all this kind of stuff so we're going to try and delve through some of that in part two and uh, see if we can get I mean, you've laid us down a new perspective, a new way of looking at the rocks. We've got to bear in mind we need to keep our biblical perspective. Let's see where we can go with that in uh, the second session this evening. But how about we do some questions now? What do you think of that? I think that's a good idea, Joe. I'll just throw in one more illustration where this is a real issue. I uh, can't remember from just what you said, whether you mentioned Derek Ager, uh, who has a brilliant observation that most of us don't make. Now, I have no problem holding that guy up, grab his books, even though if you're a creationist, don't say anything that's in them. He tells you not to. But in reality, he says it's fairly easy to see where a rock layer starts. It's almost impossible to define where it ends. And there's a good reason. If you lay down rocks on top of another rock, then this rock, it, that's the bottom of it. But did it erode 10 feet, 20 feet? Did it erode half a mile, two kilometers? What did it erode? Is there anything missing uh, between those two? Um, how do you compare rocks in one country with another? And because I've been so involved in the coal industry, then in reality, what you find, if you come to Australia, we have coal along the eastern seaboard. Um, Oxley was one of the first to note the coal at Newcastle in Australia. And from then on, it became a fight. Did it fit the same pattern as the coal in England? Or was it a new pattern? The first professor, the male professor at um, Newcastle University, uh, he actually wrote, this is a flood deposit. Why? Because, no, he wasn't talking Noah's flood. He just said, if you look at the analysis of the coal, there's catastrophism everywhere. But then as you go up through the coal, you start down the edge of the Sydney Basin and you have one sort of coal, it moves upwards and you have fossil trees that really belong to the English coal fields. You know, the fossil trees you've got in the, the uh, coast up there, just south of the Durham, Joseph, uh, mm -hmm. we've got the same here in Australia. So do we lump it off and call it the same as Durham or do we make it a second one here? Or do we just say, this is Australia? By the way, that's the usual solution. <laughs> this is Australia, it'll do us. So there's an awful lot of conflict in the geologic column that never gets into your textbooks and never gets into ordinary people's knowledge. So again, Derek Ager, it's easy to tell where something starts because the bottom is the bottom and nothing much can interfere with it. But the top, you can erode off tons. You can redeposit something there that even looks the same. Hence the need for words like unconformity, paraconformity, look those up as well. So, okay, Joe, I think questions are a good time now. Um, give us five or 10 minutes, Donnie, and we'll let Joe loose. Okay, perfect. Uh, John, I appreciate that presentation. Tons of great feedback from the chat and uh, fantastic work. I love it. So here's the first question that comes in. This one comes in from Ryan, the Raptor guy. Ryan, I appreciate your question there, brother. So he, uh, he asks, for sake of clarity, would uh, 
John Mackay and Joe Hubbard say that, for example, the hermit shale was laid down sideways at the same time as the bright angel shale. Okay, for those of you who haven't been to the Grand Canyon, the Bright Angel Trail is the most famous one which leads you over this uh, this deposit here. And, and you can camp down at the Bright Angel Campground, right? So these are moderately well-known terms, although they're not understood terms. Now, my professor, who was way more authoritative than me, who got me started, he would say, yes, you can prove that the sediment came in sideways. Now, when you have a look at our strata machines, we can actually do several things. One is, you saw one yesterday where you had the layers, black, white, black, white, black, white, and they're all forming pretty simultaneously along the bottom. But then we can actually adjust the water flow so you can end up with layer, pause, layer, pause, layer, pause. Now, if you think of Noah's flood, uh, what's our model going to be? Number one, up till the start of the flood, no rain. Therefore, no floods. Therefore, no erosion. Therefore, no fossilization. So most of the first geologists said the first category of rocks, the primary rocks, and these are their words, will relate to the ones that have no fossils. They are, in essence, pre-flood rocks. That's their original definition. Then the next lot of rocks, the sedimentary rocks, you have to have erosion. But since they're full of fossils, the erosion has obviously buried them. And if you haven't got to see fossils yet, or if you haven't figured it out, most of the fossils were buried alive and buried quickly. That's how they get to be so well preserved. So they said the secondary rocks relate to Noah's flood in particular. The tertiary rocks from the end of the flood up to the present, then the quaternary, the uh, fourth period, which is basically what we're sitting in now. That's changed a bit over the years, but in reality, it's a creation, Noah's flood scenario. But you think of Noah's flood, the fountains of the deep break open. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. On top of that, you have two tides every day. Pulse, pulse, pulse. So it is possible in a flood model where the sediment is coming in from the side to have pulse, pulse, pulse. Uh, it's easy to determine where the bottom of the next pulse is, but it may have chewed away the top of the previous pulse. So that's probably the best way of dealing with that. My professor was adamant. The rocks in the Grand Canyon grow old sideways. I've been there many times now. I have to agree with him. Right? And uh, when you look at it, pulse, pulse, pulse works just as well as the concept that they all form sideways at the same time. So you can imagine a one mile deep wall of water with 27 different layers in it containing different contents. No, I don't think that's the picture at all. But you've got, well, how many how many tides in 360, 370 days, two each day? You've got at least a thousand pulses going at the start. And by the time you get to the water running right off the earth, and those pulses are going to be mega impacts on sediment distribution. Joe, any comments? I think you covered uh, you covered most of it. I've unfortunately not had the privilege of visiting the Grand Canyon yet, although I've been all up and down through uh, um, New Mexico and into Arizona, but I never quite made it to the Grand Canyon. So you'll certainly know what you're talking about.
you're talking about. We don't have the money to send you at the moment. I know, yeah. If anybody would like to send me, then we we greatly appreciate it. Um, But a similar kind of scenarios can be seen elsewhere around the world. I mean, we've been out into Australia and you've got the same kind of canyons and the same kind of geology, more or less. Um, It's just not as well known as the Grand Canyon. And yeah, you're, the, the point is, it's this pulse, 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 and you can see it. I mean, I when I first went out to Australia on the first day to try and get me over jet lag, right, we got taken down to go and collect some mineral sands. And we dug up some mineral sands, uh, which I was informed at a later date were radioactive, and I probably wouldn't have been sitting <laughs> waist deep in it if I'd have known that. But we were collecting mineral sands, we were collecting quartz sands, we were collecting sort of crushed and uh, rock in order to be able to reconstitute it. And what's fascinating is when you put this into the uh, into the uh, the strata machines, the fact that there's already layers there in the water, it's already doing the organisation. And there's so much more research we could do in terms of uh, the velocity of the water, as in how fast is it going and which direction is it going, based with the weight and the mass and the density of all of these different particles. But you can have entirely different, uh, you suppose you could call them, um, it's not just layers, it's like almost completely different sequences being formed within the strata machine at the same time. And all you need is a little influx of a bit of erosion from somewhere else and a slightly different material, and it's going to react differently as it builds up. So it really is this pulsing of these minerals and these sediment being pushed through. So, yeah, I think that's 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 pretty much all. Again, uh, great thorough response from uh, John and Joe. I appreciate it. So this next one comes in from Cool Jesus. And um, Cool Jesus says, question for Joe and John. Can we tell if sedimentary deposits are lake or fluvial, in brackets, river, or fluvial from the global flood? Joe, you can take that one first. Well, well, I'll make a comment and John, feel free to jump in. Uh, We will be touching a little bit on this in my section, because what we're going to try and do is say, all right, then there's lots of controversy over where the post flood and flood boundary is. There's even bigger controversy at the moment anyway, uh, between where the pre flood and the flood boundary is. And there are some arguments that it could be as high up as the Carboniferous, right? Um, Which means all of the Ordovician and all of the uh, sort of rocks and stuff that John was holding up and showing earlier were all formed somewhere between creation, maybe at creation, or somewhere up to Noah's flood. So there's lots of discussion and there's lots of debate. And what we're going to try and do in my session is say, how would you actually recognize flood rocks? I mean, we need to first of all determine how much of the geologic column is useful, and we'll talk about that in my bit. But if we take a a sequence, if we take a grouping of rocks like Jurassic or Cretaceous or whatever, um, how do we determine whether they've been formed in the flood, as in Noah's flood, as in a worldwide flood? Or how do we determine whether they're a smaller deposit, like formed in a lake? or formed in perhaps a large river? Uh, At what point does a global flood and a river actually, you know, if you keep making a, a, a river big enough, does it take over the whole world? The key thing here is size of the deposit. So, for instance, and again, me and John were just talking about this, and John, I believe you've been to the Green River Formation in Wyoming. It's a fabulous place. Uh, I've got so many fossils in our UK collection from that place because it's so 
rich in fossils. Now, we have a whole presentation on the fish fossils there, right? And we make the very, very simple point. These fish have been buried alive. They've been buried with food in their stomachs. They've been buried and trapped extremely quickly and layers upon layers upon layers of this sediment. There's no doubt about it. It is a catastrophic flooding event that has buried these fish. And you know it's a flood because... Well, what's the definition of a flood? If your kitchen tap breaks and it bursts and water pours over the sink and goes onto your kitchen floor, you have a flood in the kitchen, right? Because water belongs in the kitchen sink, it doesn't belong on the floor. So the definition of a flood is water where water shouldn't be. It's burst its banks, it's flooded. All right, evidence of a flood, mixed environments, mixed ecosystems. So there's no doubt about it. It's a flooding event in the Green River Formation because you have birds and you have trees and you have palms and you have fish and you have crabs and they're all mixed together. It's a flooding event for sure. Um, those fish had to be living somewhere before, so there had to be somewhere for them to live. There had to be a bank and there had to be a surrounding environment, a terrestrial environment for all of these birds and trees and mammals and animals to live in and turtles. So there was a lovely little ecosystem there, but a flooding event has engulfed it and buried it. Okay, how big is the Green River Formation? Well, first of all, it's right on the top of all of what you could call the... Um, flood sediments the worldwide deposits so it's sitting right on top if you look at geomorphology there was certainly a basin there a valley there the fact that the valley has been carved out of the global flood deposits means that it has to have been uh you know flood runoff or some kind of mechanism towards the end of the flood to carve the valley out there appears to have been a lake there and a large flooding event could be in volcanoes or part of the ice age or part of a burst of the uh, an ice dam has flooded it and buried it so it's definitely a catastrophic burial but the size of the green formation is so small it really simply isn't a global deposit so you can start to pick up little clues particularly on the size on the ecosystem on the way that it kind of is uh, structured in the geomorphology i mean when you compare the little tiny um green river formation with something absolutely enormous like the cretaceous or the carboniferous or the jurassic beds i mean you're just talking on a completely different scale so you also need to have a mechanism by which you can erode the sediment in order to deposit it in the first place so these are all little clues that you can kind of start to piece together but john okay now um yesterday somebody criticized the reference to the triceratops above the um the uh, kat boundary there if you want to know my source for that i was there and i went down to the local dinosaur museum and asked them about this boundary and they said oh you'll go up here you'll find a triceratops now i haven't been to that location for a long time and I've never looked it up in the, in the magazines because I don't believe looking up things that you've actually been in an area is even worth the effort because I've discovered one thing about science journals. Sadly, they often don't report what's actually there if it contradicts their theory. So please don't trust Google, Google Checker. You need a checker on Google Checker. In fact, Joseph, you've got a good illustration of a deposit 
which is regarded as a marine deposit in which there is evidence that it was a flood deposit and yet that evidence has been removed. Would you like to comment on that one at the moment? Oh, I will add one last thing. I did make one mistake yesterday, so I need to fess up. When I was quickly dealing with that boundary, I told you about a boundary just outside of Dudley. That's actually the pre-Cambrian Cambrian boundary, so forgive me for that. Uh, that. That wasn't there, and I thought afterwards, oh, no, did I really say that? And the answer is yes, I did. Uh, but in reality, I'm sure you can forgive me for that. But Joe, you've been working on one bed. You're interested in it for your PhD. You're interested for your thesis that you were doing. And it's got fossils in it that are not acknowledged anywhere anymore. They used to be. Tell us about it. Sure. So um, I grew up on the Norfolk coast collecting fossils from about the age of six. So I've uh, been <laughs> digging up stuff and getting to grips with the geology around there for a very long time. And I used to love to go along Hunstanton. You saw the picture earlier. We'll bring the pictures up in a bit and you'll see some of the research we've done at Hunstanton uh, and set that secular research as well, by the way. And as we've been going along down there over the years, uh, you've got the wonderful brown rock at the bottom, which is a sandstone. It's a cast stone. It's uh, comparable with the upper green sand around the rest of the planet. And then you've got the chalk on top of it. Now, the standard story is that this is all a marine deposit. Uh, it's a marine deposit that is, I mean, the sandstone is claimed to have been uh, a slightly more turbulent deposit because it's got lots of rounded little tiny boulders. It's a semi-conglomerate, although there's not huge great big cobbles or anything like that. Uh, there's lots of pebbles in it though. And then you've got the chalk above, which is supposed to be a very, very slow, gradual deposition of calcareous ooze. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the issues with that as we go on. Nonetheless, the whole lot is supposed to be considered a marine environment. Now, first year of geology, we was going through, and the one thing they teach you is when you go out to see these deposits, you are looking at the history of life on Earth. And, of course, the first thing you realize when you actually start digging stuff up is you're looking at a record of death on Earth, uh, and you're looking at a record of how things have died. So what the standard theory is, is you go out there and say, right, we'll dig up these fossils. If they're all marine, then that is a marine environment that these rocks were deposited in. All right. Now, I began to actually dig up some rather interesting fossils, and it was the first time I'd ever heard of these fossils coming from this cast stone sandstone formation, supposedly marine deposit. And so I did a little bit of research, and I actually found that these have been found before. There's a wonderful museum called the Sedgwick Museum, named after Adam Sedgwick in association with Cambridge University. And Adam Sedgwick was an interesting fellow. He was a big opponent of Charles Darwin and uh, Charles Lyell, and he said, my fossil collection and anything else that ever gets added to it must always be available for students to come and see and uh, be able to uh, study uh, no matter what their beliefs or no matter what their background. Now, it's become a bit more commercialized since Adam Sedgwick's day, but it still has over a half a million fossils on display and many, many, many more in its archives. You can go and spend hours and hours looking through all the fossils there. And there was a section on Hans Stanton, and up the top there was a big block of castine with one of these big fossils in it that I'd also found and documented and I thought wow it is here it is known this is great okay skip forward to my second year of geology in university we were taken on a field trip 
Now, I love leading field trips, and we like to try and get people to think and find stuff themselves. My experience of most field trips is that they're basically just an outdoors lecture. <laughs> and we were walking along, and uh, the professor was there talking about how we know that this is a fully marine deposition. And I said, excuse me, Prof, what about all of the fossil trees that you find here? He said, fossil trees? There aren't any fossil trees here. There's no fossil wood here. I said, yes, there is. Come have a look. And I took him along to every place that I documented this fossil wood, this fossil timber being found in the carstone. And he said, well, my goodness, I've never known about this before. And I said, well, I thought that too, but it's documented. If you go to the Sedgwick Museum, it's up there on the top shelf. A wonderful bit of fossil wood from the Carstone and Hunstanton. I said, how does this fit into the interpretation that this is a fully marine dep deposit? And he said, well, I don't know. I'm going to have to go away and think about this, but I'll let you know. So we ended the uh, uh, field trip and that was that. I never heard from him again because that was an end of year field trip and we went on to a third year and a whole different set of tutors and professors, right? Okay, skip forward a few months and I was still on the previous year's Facebook group. And when it came to the end of the next year, I saw that all these new uh, year two students were being taken out for a field trip to Hunstanton by the fat same professor. And after the field trip, I happened to go, by the way, did he mention the fossil trees of Hunstanton? They said fossil trees? He didn't mention any such thing. He said this was a fully marine deposit. I thought, interesting. And so a couple of weeks later, I was in Cambridge and we actually went back into the Sedgwick Museum uh, to go and see uh, the fossils there and see if the fossil wood from Hunstanton was still there. And it wasn't. It has disappeared. And if you try and go through the archives, they say, well, it's here somewhere, but we're not quite sure where it is. Um, or, you know, they don't allow you into the furthest depths of the archives. Now, that's a real life example that I've experienced of not only denial of things that are already there, right? Because I asked the students on the second year, he didn't mention the evidence, but also a interesting little case and of course you can't prove it here there or other but one thing i know for sure that fossil wood was sitting on the top shelf and the moment i challenged it on an academic level it disappeared so yes things do sometimes go missing intentionally or unintentionally um you can draw your own conclusions and i'll give you one last example as much as this sounds like, hey, there's guys out there who are actually opposed to creation, opposed to Noah's flood. Yes, there are. And they're sometimes very aggressively opposed. Illustration. I used to lecture coal mining students and some of my students became coal mining managers, engineers or whatever. So I would visit the various uh, mines around the place. And I went to one mine. New student was there, first year there. I said, have you found any evidence that this was washed in? Are there fossil trees in the coal? Normal theory of coal, slow swamp formation, filled in over vast periods of time. And uh, he said, no, no, no evidence of trees here. And I said, well, they're in every other coal field around here. Give me 10 minutes, get me access. And so he got me access. We went to an area of the coal that was, you know, you can't go to an active coal mine to an active face. So we went to an unactive phase, hadn't been worked on for ages, got permission to do the research. Within 10 minutes, we found tons and tons of trees. Now, the next morning, that entire face, which was not due for research, sorry, not due for excavation for ages, was blown to smithereens. Yep, it does happen. Sad, but true. 
it does happen. Probably time for the next question there, uh, Donny. One more than Joe. Actually, probably time Joe thinks about moving on to his section. <laughs> well, we've got a, a, a ton more good questions. We can save a couple more for after Joe's presentation if you'd like to. I do appreciate those comprehensive uh, answers. So it's let's, up to you, let's gentlemen. Do, let's do one more, one more question because we have a little bit more time uh, this evening. And my section, I've... Uh, been whittling down um as you've been whittling it down joe because i've got one more section here on how you'd read the rocks too with from the fossils that are in it so we need a tag team in the last yeah, bit yeah. too so go ahead with your last choice of question there donnie for the moment okay perfect uh here's a question that's short and sweet and i'll save a couple of the longer ones for later so this one comes in from chris peacock and he asks how long does it take sediment to turn to stone okay illustration we have a beach not far from our Jurassic Ark, and uh, it's called Shelley Beach. And basically, after a big storm, you get tons and tons of shells from a shell bed just you know, off the coast. They wash up. They're smashed to pieces because of the storm. Most of our Queensland tropical storms, it's hot water coming down. So therefore, your shells come in mixed up with sand. The hot water will start to really react with the edges of the shells. And at nighttime, the water cools down and the dissolved calcium carbonate will start to precipitate. Remember, you've had the shells, you've had bacteria, you've had organic material, and you've got sand. Now, this was first pointed out to me by one of the professors who said, basically, what happens, one day it's sand, next day it's concrete. Uh, in fact, that's what we used to make our concrete out of. We'd go along the beaches, grab the shells, crush them all up, and cook them, and then add the water back the next day, and you'd end up with concrete. It didn't take time, it took a process. So you'll find the, the time it takes depends on what chemicals are available. No glue material, you have the problem that many oil drillers find. You're drilling down, down, down through the rock, then all of a sudden your diamond drill goes and smash, exit one diamond drill. Very expensive to replace. You gotta pull it all out first, what happened? Well, it came across a bed of sand. There was no cement in that sand, no dissolved cement, no calcite of any sort that could actually glue it together, no silica solution. So therefore it remained non-glued non together. It never turned into rock and it never would. Without a glue, the sediment never becomes rock. With a glue, well, you make artificial rock by, in fact, you can make it in three minutes using uh, cement speeder upper. So it doesn't take time. It takes a process. Again, I appreciate that response, John. Unless you had something you wanted to add, Joe, we could get into your. Uh, now let's let's go on, John. Do you have a section which you're doing now, or am I doing my section? We'll come. Now back you do your section first, and I'll come in after that on Sounds on good. the use of some of the fossils we found as when to determine the rocks formed. Sounds good. All right, let's pull up my uh, presentation. Just make sure it's all there. All right, there's our uh, there's our uh, title, courtesy of Sam Jenkins, who I think has just uh, joined us in the. Uh, in the chat as well so thank you very much for that sam for the trailer and everything else 
Um, this is what we've been talking about. I mean, we've done three segments so far. I'm going to try and uh, get us a little bit further with the fourth segment, and then John and myself will kind of wrap it all up for the the fifth mini segment um, before we open it back up to questions again. So here's your standard geological column. And you remember we asked some of these questions yesterday. Is the column an accurate representation of earth rocks? Is the column a good basis for interpreting flood geology? Does the column represent accurate rock sedimentation? And can we even use the column for determining flood boundaries? Well, unfortunately, for all of these questions, it's no. I mean, is the column an accurate representation of earth rocks? It doesn't exist anywhere. Derek Asia had even had to admit that. It's not a good basis for interpreting flood geology because flood geology requires what? Flowing water. Flowing water is transportation of sediment and sediment forming sideways. The geologic column is based off of stratigraphy, which is based off of principles, uh, uh, Steno's principle of superposition, and it simply doesn't work. Does the column represent accurate rock sediment datation? Now, this is where you have to be careful because people trip up over sedimentation and stratigraphy. Stratigraphy is looking at the complete set of rocks through the eyes of Steno uh, of superposition with the bottom got there first, the top got there last, and now it's become so intertwined with wild assumptions of the present being the key to the past. Sedimentation is how these rocks actually form. So now the column doesn't represent an accurate rock sedimentation theory because it's based off of Steno's faulty uh, uh, and flawed principles. So therefore, we can't even use the column for determining flood boundaries. People, uh, and even amongst creationists, are looking for a wonderful thing like the geologic column to ignore the dates on the side and to get a big black pen and say, right, the KT boundary, there's the flood boundary. Everything below it is flood, everything above it is post-flood. Or there's the boundary, it's halfway through the tertiary, above the Paleogene. Or there's the boundary uh, for before the flood, it's down there at the Cambrian, Precambrian. Or there's the boundary, it's up there at the Carboniferous, um, underneath or above the Devonian. But the reality is any of these uh, ideas or any of these theories about where the boundary is based off the geological column is going to be flawed simply because um, superposition doesn't work. OK, do you actually need the long ages? Because this is something else which has become increasingly controversial in the last little while. And I may step on some toes here, but we're just going to show uh, some of the dangers of actually trying to take the geological column and apply it to flood geology in its purest form. Because you see all the dates down there on the right hand side. Now, even though these uh, individual layers, these individual as they're now known as eras, but individual sequences like the Triassic or the Jurassic or the Permian or so on and so forth are all very real and they can all be matched up by comparing the sediment across the world. The actual geological column was put together based on the principles of Steno and then it was taken forward by people like Ray and Hook. We did all this in history yesterday. It was taken forward by Ray and Hook. It was reinterpreted by Hutton. It was popularized by Charles Lyell and it has anti-biblical 
pagan origins. So what you will inevitably end up doing is taking all of this baggage, applying it to the Bible, applying it to flood geology, and trying to fit deep time into the young earth. And then you start to get onto some very dangerous grounds because you say, well, the Bible clearly teaches that the earth is less than 10,000 years old. If you want to be more accurate, it's somewhere between six to 7,000 years old. So you have to then apply accelerated rates of creation or things that actually go outside of God as the supreme creator and the supreme judge. Give you an example, or rather uh, make a point first, rather, before we give you an example. All interpretations of evidence that promote deep time and vast ages ultimately can be led back to the anti-biblical philosophy of Lyell and uniformitarianism. It was Lyell who actually promoted this present is the key to the past philosophy, and it is underpinning, even though most geologists wouldn't refer to themselves as uniformitarians anymore, uh, they'd refer to themselves as neo-catastrophists, even if they know what that means, usually uh, or probably because of the influence of people like Derek Ager, right? Even though no scientists today or very few scientists refer to themselves as uniformitarianists, the principles of uniformitarianism and that Lyellian philosophy of the present being the key to the past underpins most, if not all, dating methods today. And they all can be traced back to pagan origins, which has nothing to do with science or evidence. Huh. Therefore, take careful note. If you take a pagan-inspired philosophy that Lyell and Darwin promoted as your authority, then you're going to have issues accepting the Bible's version of events. But you have to realize it's not an issue of evidence, it's an issue of who or what your authority is. Hmm. An example, um, the trap of uniformitarianism, the present is the key to the past. Now, this is where it begins to get a little bit controversial because, well, just beware of the God of science. You see, there's a, a trend today by some people in the creation world to say, OK, we need to actually view all of this geology. We need to view all of this uh, understanding purely from a scientific point of view. We have to develop science and then make it fit with scripture or our interpretation or understanding of scripture. And you need to be careful because what you're doing there is making science your God. Science then comes before scripture. Um, and then you get into all sorts of strange stuff like with God's got to supernaturally create a seedling but over time uh, he accelerates it so that it grows within a fraction of a second into a tree without really stopping to think well if God could supernaturally create the seedling in the first place surely he could create it a fully mature tree um, and in fact it would certainly seem to imply that that's what he did just take it from the Psalms for he spoke and it came to be he commanded and it stood firm ah interesting now, some people, um, like, for instance, Ken Colson in his book Creation Unfolding, he's come up with an idea called supernatural formative process theory, which really at its depth is fitting a deep time philosophy into a short time frame using this ex supernaturally accelerated process. Um, so like a seedling, God supernaturally accelerates it into a tree on just the day three. Now, you've got to be careful of this because I've read Kel uh, Colson's book, uh, amongst uh, other things, and I've actually got his paper on stromatolites here. And we'll talk a little bit about stromatolites. Um, you see, often he, he will argue that his 
idea of this accelerated supernatural creation is needed to rationalize the many horizons of stromatolites buried on top of one another in some of the earliest rocks of Earth. Um, the underlying assumption there that you need to be careful with is even though Ken Colson, uh, he claims to be a young Earth creationist and believe in the 6,000 years, there is still an underlying Lyellian thinking uh, which is required to explain rock layers according to his ideas. There's still this idea of the present being the key to the past. In fact, he says it several times in his paper using stromatolites to rethink the pre-Cambrian, Cambrian, pre-flood, uh, flood boundary. Um, he says, we know that by observing it today, they must take a huge amount of time in order to be able to form and bury and be fossilized. Therefore, you would require a huge amounts of time in the beginning. And so God must have been able to accelerate it in order to fossil it uh, or turn it into a fossil or preserve it in the way that it is. Well, here's a stromatolite from our UK collection. It's a wonderful stromatolite reef, huge, great big thing. And the real key thing about stromatolites is if you chop them open, you get all this wonderful banding. Now, John can comment at the end of this if he'd like to, because he's traveled the world more than me and he's collected more stromatolites than me. But the cool thing about this is, well, yes, they are still alive today in um, Australia off the coast of Queensland. They're a living fossil and they are an algal growth that is secreting minerals all the time. Minerals. Well, one of the things we like to remind people is quite often uh, a lot of fossils are already fossils even when they're alive because they're producing rock. I mean, this is a living thing which produces a living rock uh, that secretes these minerals and builds it up in layers and the algal film lives on the top and secretes the minerals and it builds up these layers upon layers upon layers and in doing this it's pushing itself down into the ground so you don't need millions of years and nor do you even need a process to which to really fossilize these reefs because they're already fossils in the first place in fact, if you want to apply uh, the logic that Colson does, because he says, well, stromatolites, um, you would require uh, calm conditions to build up over vast periods of time. So God must have accelerated their growth. Well, I'm afraid if you want to apply that logic to the pre-Cambrian or the Cambrian, you have to apply it to the whole of the geological column because these stromatolites turn up all over the place. They're still alive today. These are some Jurassic stromatolites in the Isle of Portland in the UK. Now, if you are in the UK in September, make sure you come along to our UK fossil hunting convention. The Isle of Portland is one of the places we'll be going and we'll be looking at these stromatolites and we'll be asking the question, how long does it actually take to fossilize these? And the answer is, by the time they've started living, they're already fossils because they're already producing this rock underneath them. Okay, is any of the geological column useful at all? Well, you again, remember what I mentioned earlier. There's a difference between stratigraphy and there's a difference, uh, sorry, rather, there's a difference between stratigraphy and sedimentation. So the rock classifications themselves can be very useful in determining boundaries. I mean, the Jurassic rocks all across the world are pretty much identical. The 
um, Carboniferous rocks, or as you call them in the states, the Pennsylvanian and the Mississippian, all around the world are pretty much identical. The Ordovician rocks, particularly the limestones, all around the world are pretty much identical. So rock classifications can be very useful. And remember John's very important point from earlier: um, they've got nothing to do with millions of years in the slightest. They've got everything to do with where they were studied or what they're made up of. Triassic, the three different rock types. Uh, the three different rock sandstone types in the grouping. Uh, Pennsylvanian and Mississippian, it's where they were first studied. Or if you want to have the English name for them as Carboniferous, it's because it's full of coal. Right? In our industrial revolution, Jurassic, named after the Jura Mountains, Cretaceous from the Latin word for chalk, which is Creta, uh, which is certainly the vast, a huge amount, rather, um, of uh, the Cretaceous rocks is chalk or some kind of limestone. Ordovician after the extinct Welsh tribe, the Ordovici tribe. Uh, Cambrian after Cymru, the old Welsh name for the country. But you do have to be aware of the issue that Aja pointed out, which is it's really easy to work out where a sequence begins. It's almost impossible to tell where it ends. So you're not going to be able to get a nice big black marker and say, there's our boundary, because this is an entire geologic column based off of a faulty philosophy, a Steno superposition philosophy, which was taken on by Charles Lyell and applied the principle of uniformitarianism and added on millions of years. So some rules for looking at biblical geology. First of all, we need to make sure that all pagan-inspired Lyellian philosophies are rejected from the offset. None of this, it requires vast periods of time. Use the named rock sequences, because they're there and they're useful, uh, and many of them were named by early geologists, the catastrophists, the Christians, the creationists. So use the named rock sequences in determining the deposit size, and we'll look through a few examples of each of these. Make sure to actually assess the evidence rather than assumptions affected by uniformitarianism. One of the things that I'm very grateful to God is that I've had the privilege, even in my young age, of traveling all over the world and actually digging up and collecting the evidence. John's traveled far more extensive than I have, and it really does help with actually matching stuff up. I mean, I've stood here in the UK on the Ordovician limestone and seen what it's like. I've stood over in the USA at the Ordovician limestone and seen what it's like. I've stood at the Carboniferous here in the UK and at the Carboniferous uh, over in uh, the States and in the, well, there's lots of debates over whether it's uh, Permo-Triassic or Carboniferous or something like that over in Australia, but it's pretty much identical. Okay, rocks, were they formed by a flood or were they formed by the flood? Because you have rocks formed by a flood, you have rocks formed in Noah's flood. In fact, most of the rocks were formed in a flood. So what's the evidence? What are we actually looking for? We're asking ourselves these questions. How much water would it actually take to form this deposit? What is the size of the deposit? And remember, we're looking for large-scale deposits that can be traced across continents. Small-scale deposits that are simply localities are very unlikely to be from a global flood. All right, let's have a look at Hans Stanton. We've already been there. Uh, John showed it up earlier. There's your formations, the Ferriby Chalk Formation, which is a grey chalk, the Hans Stanton Formation, which is a contaminated red chalk, and hey, there's that Carstone Formation down at the bottom there. Uh, you know, the one that I had my fossil trees in? Interesting. All right, there's some lovely 
clear boundaries there. You see the layer, it's like a knife edge from where the red chalk goes into the white chalk or the grey chalk. Uh, there's a knife edge from where the cast out. I mean, here it's clear to see where the boundaries start, right? Uh, of course, if you want to compare that elsewhere, it gets slightly more complicated. I mean, it's a beautiful day there when I took this photograph. These are really impressive cliffs and they're full of fossils or particularly the red, uh, the, the red chalk and the grey chalk, the Hunstanton formation and the Ferroby chalk formation. And also you get this. Ah, interesting. These are stromatolites. They're algal growths on the top of the boundary between the red chalk and the grey chalk. This is from a paper written a few years back um, by some guys that I know based in the University of East Anglia, and they were amazed to find these kind of algal growth mats in between the layers. Um, stromatolites? Yeah, if you want to apply the Colson logic, you'd have to argue that these rocks were also pre-flood and so it just really doesn't work out you're destroying all of the geological record by that definitely stromatolites there but have a look at our friend Ager again and see what his issue with the chalk was consider he says the english upper chalk of the late cretaceous age in north norfolk and eastern england hey that's where i'm from it totals 394.7 meters in thickness that is a lot of chalk it was laid down in about 32.5 million years, which gives a rate of 12.4 metres per million years. That works out at 82,372 years to deposit one millimetre of chalk. Now, let me ask you a question. If that rate of formation was correct, would you ever get a fossil in that chalk? No, you wouldn't. It would simply be destroyed long before you have a chance to actually fossilise it. In fact, would you even get any chalk in the first place? Because your deposition rate has to be higher than your erosion rate. And he said, hey, when you actually start looking at this and you start working out the deposition based on the uniformitarian assumptions, you just get ludicrous results. They were his words, by the way. What evidence does Hunstanton show? Well, we've dealt with Hunstanton several times on this program and over on Creation Conversations, so go and check that out. We won't spend a long time here, but a three-month research project uh, plus several field trips that John and myself have been to there, fossils have been buried rapidly for sure. Fossils have been buried rapidly all throughout the deposit, and yes, they show transportation, currents, and flow. A three-month research project into Hunstanton, second year of geology, looked for evidence of transportation that's fast-flowing currents during the formation of the Hunstanton and Ferrobee formations and the burial of fossils within. 93% of fossils showed transportation. That means that 93% showed evidence that they were buried during flowing water. Therefore, these fossils were formed in water flowing in one direction, having been caught up in a slurry of sediment before being rapidly buried and fossilised. All right, definitely a flooded deposit. Now, this is a, this is a very long uh, quote from Derek Ager, but it's really important to read it out because it gives you the big perspective. So I apologize if you're looking at this on a phone. Uh, it's, uh, it's not the best way to use a PowerPoint presentation, but just listen to me as I read out what Derek Ager said. I was taken, he said, by a Turkish friend to visit a cliff section in the Upper Cretaceous to sediments near Sile on the Black Sea coast. What I saw were the familiar white chalk of northwest Europe 
with black flints and old fossil friends. Uh, these are echinoids he's talking about, sea urchins. What I was looking at was identical with the white cliffs of Dover in England and the rolling plateau of Picardy in France, the quarries in southern Sweden, the cliffs in eastern Denmark. We have long known, of course, that the white chalk faces of the late Cretaceous uh, times extended all the way from Antrim in Northern Ireland via England and Northern France into the Low Countries, Northern Germany, Southern Scandinavia to Poland, Bulgaria, eventually to Georgia in the south of the Soviet Union. We knew the same chalk was there in Egypt and Israel. My record was merely an extension of that vast range to the south side of the Black Sea. Nevertheless, there is even worse to come, for on the other side of the Atlantic in Texas, we find the Austin chalk of the same age and character, found in Arkansas, Mississippi and Alabama. And most surprising at all, much further away still in Western Australia, we have the Jinjin chalk of the late Cretaceous age, with the same black fins and the same familiar fossils, resting, as in Northwest Europe, on glauconic, uh, glauconitic sands. That's the upper uh, green sand is essentially, and the carstain is the same thing. It all sits on the same bed of sand. All right. How big was the Cretaceous? I mean, that's a lot of places he mentioned there. That's a really, really big deposit of chalk. The Cretaceous deposits are worldwide in their um, extent. A worldwide deposit with evidence of rapid deposition from the fossils within, and many of the fossils show burial under flow, so there are flooded water, and you even have on the same green in the same beds of sand more of this fossil timber, so you've got mixed environments as well. This is a global flood deposit for sure. Formed under flowing water conditions, a flood covers a huge portion of the Earth's surface, a worldwide flood equals formed during Noah's flood. All right, let's take you to Jurassic Arc. John's already briefly mentioned Jurassic Arc, and you get some fabulous fossils from there. Again, we've dealt with Jurassic Arc many times on these programs, so we won't go into too much detail, but let's have a look at the point. You see the fossil tree in the middle there? You see the rocks it's buried next to? Ah, trees, logs, they float in water. Rocks don't. If you want to get them buried next to each other, they have to be buried in very fast-flowing water, water that's fast enough to actually carry the logs along. Here's a fairly new excavation, and thank you for all the people who've been funding Jurassic Arc, enabling us to put up uh, all of these wonderful um, uh, buildings so that we people like John and Daryl can get underneath and dig up these brand new fossils. Lots of lovely broken log sections evidence of a rapid dump uh, broken up logs float rocks don't so you've got now got current velocity indicators you've got the logs pointing in the same way so you know the direction of the waters you've also got an indication of how fast the water was going because you've got a massive great big boulder next to it logs are oriented in a southwest northeast direction throughout the deposits ah southwest northeast there it is again northeast southwest there it is again Yep, no doubt about it. These logs, and you can find out more about the deposit online. You can find out more in previous. We went into in-depth in the last session I did with Standing for Truth, I think. Um, orientation, broken trees, abrasion, uh, mixed dump of rocks and logs. Rocks, they all show evidence of it being a flood, washing these logs into place. Now, Jurassic Arc is... Well, it's pretty big. It's on several hectares. But how big is this deposit up there in northern Australia? Let's have a look at this flood dump deposit size. There it is. 
a Jurassic flood log bed. Um, Brisbane down there, uh, up into Gympie, and then all the way out into Queensland and just touching into the Northern Territory and as far down as New South Wales. That is a really big deposit. Now, us in the UK, we complain if we start driving for more than two hours to get somewhere. <laughs> it was John us to drive two and a half hours just to get to the local museum, Jurassic Ark, right? Um, let's put this into perspective. There's the United Kingdom. Wow. That is a big continent. It's a big island is Australia. I know I had to drive from John's house in Queensland all the way down to Melbourne. We flew across to South Australia. We flew up into the central area. We went down to Tasmania. We went all over and it took us weeks to do it. This is a big country and this is a really big deposit, an enormous deposit that covers a good proportion of an entire continent. But ponder this. Every cubic meter of sandstone means approximately three cubic meters of other rocks had to have been destroyed in order to deposit it. So you need incredible volume in of water just to erode these rocks to be able to sweep over the land, to catch up the trees, to pick up the rocks, to transport them into place and to dump them down. So now you've got a continental size flood. But you have to realize water finds its lowest place, right? basic um, theory of water. So in order to actually get enough water with enough mass, with enough power to actually sweep over an entire continent, erode and dump, you are definitely looking at a global flooding event. It requires a flood of global proportions for the erosion of sediment, flooding of land and the deposition of new strata as well. The Australian Jurassic formed under flowing water conditions, definitely a flood, covers huge portions of the Earth's surface, definitely a worldwide flood, therefore the Jurassic was formed during Noah's flood. All right, let's go, if you're using the geological column, to older rocks or to lower rocks and see if we can get a boundary for the flood there. So what's the size of the Carboniferous or the Mississippian and Pennsylvania, as you call them in the States, coal beds? Well, here's some of those carboniferous beds in the UK next to a beautiful polystrate tree, a lycopod. Wonderful. And great fossils from out of here as well. Um, there you see it in a bit of context. We take field trips to this place and we're hopefully planning one later on as well. This is supposed to be 318 million years old. Now that's a pretty old deposit, but look what we're finding in it. Fossil thorns. You remember John's point from earlier? Um, Northumberland, UK, 318 million years old. No, it's not 318 million years old. In the slightest, according to the Bible, it's less than 10,000 years old. Ah, make sure you're wearing the biblical glasses, removing the Lyellian thinking when you're actually looking at these rocks. Okay, the Carboniferous rocks, they go all around the world. I've dug up stuff in the UK, I've dug up stuff in, uh, in, uh, in the States as well, up around uh, Tennessee and into Spencer. Here's our good friend Derek Ager. What does he have to say about the Carboniferous? The Carboniferous extends in essentially the same form from Texas to the Dantes Coal Basin north of the Caspian Sea in the USSR, or currently in Ukraine where all the fighting's going on, right? Uh, Texas, there's Texas, there's the Caspian Sea. This amounts to some 170 degrees of longitude and closing up the Atlantic by a mere 40 degrees does not really help at all in explaining the remarkable phenomenon. Flood deposits, 
across the world. There's no doubt about it. This is a large-scale deposit, and even more remarkable, they're now turning up in Australia as well, something that Derek Asia uh, didn't know about. This is a worldwide deposit. It's a flood deposit that is worldwide for sure. So the Carboniferous rocks formed after Adam sinned. They formed under flowing water conditions and huge portions of the Earth's surface. Therefore, it's a worldwide flood. It certainly wasn't formed before Creation Week uh, or during Creation Week because there's thorns and thorns didn't come about until after Adam sinned. It's a flooding event for sure, but it covers a huge portion of the Earth's surface. Okay, but what about the ideas that the pre-flood boundary, the you know what how uh, the 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 pre-flood flood boundary is somewhere around the Ordovician? Well, okay, little bit of trivia time. How many times, according to Scripture, has the Earth been covered in water? The answer is twice. Um, day one, day two, and half of day three of the creation week, and then again during Noah's flood. So if you have a worldwide flood deposit, it has to be formed in one of those two events, either the first few days of the creation week or during Noah's flood. Um, how would we know? Well, you can get indications from fossils, of course, and if anything has got fossil thorns in it, then it must be formed after Adam sinned. If it's a worldwide flood deposit that was formed after Adam sinned, it has to be part of Noah's flood. So let's have a look at some motivation. Let's go to Carthage in Tennessee. Um, what's this rock type? John took me there in 2019. The rock type? Ordovician limestone. Great stuff. Massive cave behind me. You can get your kayak out and go swimming through there for ages. Absolutely brilliant and full of fossils as well. Lots of road cuts alongside the USA uh, in Tennessee. Great big deposits of this Ordovician limestone. I love American roads because they just barge right the way. I mean, in English roads, we wind down through the kind of... Americans don't care. They just blast through and it gives the geologists a great time. They're also full of fossils. Oh, you see all the brachiopods there? The fossil brachiopod shells. Absolutely chock-a-block full of them. You get other fossils in the area, like this huge, great big fossil crinoid mess. Big fossil mess definitely means a flood. It's got nothing to do with time, but everything to do with a process. If you want to bury these fossils, you have to bury them and fossilize them very quickly indeed. All right, let's take you to the Lake District in the UK. Hey, look at that. It's more Ordovician limestone, and it's another cave behind me. Not quite as big as the one uh, over in Tennessee, but still pretty cool to get down into because you've got waterfalls and cave formations, stalactites and stalagmites, and it's great fun to get down there and uh, get up close and personal with some geology. Beautiful limestone formations, and look at that. More brachiopod shells. Identical brachiopod shells. It's an identical deposit in every single way. Go to the Brecon Beacons in Wales in the UK. Hey, look at that. Trilobites. Trilobites from John Mackay. And more trilobites from the Ordovician limestone in the USA. Same fossils, same rock, same deposit. And that's about some 4,000 miles or 6,500 kilometres. Wow, that's a really big flood. So it's definitely a flood deposit. Let's see if we can add a bit of timing to it. 
Well, this was a few years back in Carthage, Tennessee. You can see John there. He's digging alongside a road cut looking for some fossils. And I remember when he was here because I got a really excited text from him saying, can you guess what this is? And it took me a little bit of a while to get it. Uh, but I was always grateful that John doesn't just keep things to himself. He shares it around and he actually took me back to this place. Now, these are the Ordovician rocks. They're supposed to be 450 million years old or so. And in 2019, he took me there. And in January 2020, uh, a local geologist also took me there alongside this road cut. And you see me holding my fossil nice and proudly up. Well, here's the geologist, uh, an authority in the area. He worked for the government geology department. His geologist, Bob Powell. And here's some of the fossils that we were finding. Um, can you see them there? Uh, they're plants. In fact, uh, they're even able, they're so well preserved, we're even able to give them a name. They're Sordonia. But do you notice the one key thing? Can you see the fossil thorns? I mean, let's just get a little marker pen out here so we can point them out completely clearly. Here's your sort of uh, boundary, if you like, is the um, edge of the stem. And there's a thorn there. And there's a thorn there. And there's a thorn there. And there's, hey, they're all over this place. For sure, a great, big, beautiful fossil thorn out of the Ordovician. I mean, John was finding loads of them. Oh, you see the uh, shell next to John's thumb? You see all of the little bits of plants next to John's finger? Hey, they've been swept into position. They're showing current flow for sure. No doubt about it. This is a flood deposit. It's got land plants and sea creatures mixed up together. And they, there's some more thorns. You see the spiky thorns along? I mean, these are those really little horrible fine things that you get that'll just stick into your fingers. These are definitely fossil spines, fossil thorns. Therefore, one thing's for sure, these rocks formed after Adam sinned. Not 450 million years old at all. Ordovician rocks, definitely formed after Adam Sin, full of fossil thorns. They formed under flowing water conditions. It's definitely a flood. Land plants, sea creatures buried together. Uh, the land plants are all pointing the same way. And we can talk about the fact that really you shouldn't have land plants in these Ordovician rocks. And we screwed with some of the professor's minds because he said they have to be Devonian. He said, well, you'll have to take it up with the Tennessee Division of Geology because they're adamant that these are uh, Ordovician rocks. And they cover a huge portion of the Earth's surface from uh, all the way in Tennessee, all the way over to the UK. Definitely formed during Noah's flood. All right, let's look at a deposit that definitely wasn't formed during Noah's flood. Let's take you to Baldnor in the Isle of Wight and to a fossil jaw that I'm excavating here. I found this in uh, April 2021. You see some of the bone down under there? I mean, we just caught this just on time. We started excavating and cleaning it out and gluing it back together again. It's a wonderful fossil jaw from Boldnor, the De Hempster deposits down there on the Isle of Wight. And this jaw really is the star of the show because this is what one of the uh, fossils that I'm using in my PhD program in order to start uh, extracting soft tissue and all sorts of other interesting things from. Here's the Paleotherium jaw. Yes, we've managed to get a positive identification from a secular museum. We're working with them and actually doing some beautiful experiments with this. It's a, a brilliantly designed, uh, brilliantly uh, preserved jaw. Um, let's have a look at it in some context. There's the jaw. There's some seashells. Our Paleotherium, a land mammal. 
seashells, definitely seashells, buried next to each other, you're looking at evidence of a flood. I mean, just look at the bands and bands of seashells. This is what John's talking about when he talks about pulses. Pulse upon pulse upon pulse, you can just see it as the water is sweeping down, carrying this slurry of sediment and layering these fossil shells up, 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 up. I mean, just look at some of this stuff. It's absolutely beautiful. No doubt about it, this is a catastrophic flood dump. This is a catastrophic flood deposit dump for sure. But of course, the question is, which flood, which catastrophe? Remember our key question, how big is the deposit? Well, there's the Isle of Wight. If you followed me uh, on my road trip, and hopefully we'll do another road trip at some point soon, where you get to follow me around. Um, there's a, a simplified geological map of the Isle of Wight. I mean, you've got your chalk and you've got your Weldon. Uh, that's the orangey coloured one. That's where all the dinosaur comes out of. The chalk is the white. You've got the lower green sand, which the chalk sits on top of. And then up the top of the island, uh, along the whole of the top of the island, you have the Benbridge limestone and marls. And then in particular... Well, the Benbridge Miles themselves only cover about 25 square miles. But did you notice the little Hempstead Miles? It's, uh, let's get my little marker pen up here. That little tiny deposit just there, right? The Hempstead Miles, that's where our Paleotherium jaw came out of. The Hempstead Mile itself only covers an area of about three square miles. Uh, can you remember the kind of deposits we were talking about earlier with the flood deposits? I mean, they covered, what, six and a half thousand kilometers? 4,000 miles? Hey, three square miles is nothing compared to the Ordovician. It's nothing compared to the Jurassic. It's nothing compared to what Derek Ager saw with the chalk. The Benbridge Miles, even though they're many times bigger than the Hempstead Mile, um, they're still pretty tiny in comparison. Yes, there it is. You can see the uh, geomorphology map in the local museum. The sort of brownie colored at the top is all of the um, smaller uh, mile deposits with their Hempstead Mile next to the little sprawl of the inlet there. Hempstead Formation, well, it definitely formed after Adam sinned because uh, it's full of dead creatures. It definitely formed under flowing water conditions. Uh, it was definitely in a flood, but it covers a very, very tiny portion of the Earth's surface. This is a local flood. I mean, it's catastrophic for sure. It was buried quickly for sure because it contains fossils and it's a flood for sure because it contains mixed environments, but it's a local flood. Um, a pretty big local flood. I wouldn't want to be around when it was happening and most likely as part of the post-Noah's flood conditions as things were changing and ice was forming and the environment and climate was shifting at rapid speeds, but you find these are always on top of the layers that have been carved out at the end of the flood. Definitely formed after Noah's flood, for sure. It's not Noah's flood, but likely a post-flood, glacially-induced uh, flow or deposit. Okay, what's some of the evidence we can look for then? Deposit size is number one. You're looking for a global deposit or a local deposit. Deposit type is two. Uh, is this a deposit that requires vast amounts of erosion in the first place to get? Or is this something that could come from a volcano or a much smaller area? Um, you can look for evidence of animals adapted for erratic climates. I mean, before 
uh, time of creation, a beautiful tropical earth all the way round. Noah's flood brought the first major climate change. So when you find woolly mammoths, which are definitely adapted for the cold, they're certainly a post-flood mammal. You look for evidence of localised deposits like the Hempstead Marl, and you can also look for post-flood human interaction as well. And here's a place on the Norfolk coast. This is all glacial till. As the glaciers move forward, they churned up lots and lots and lots of sand and sediment and shoved the chalk in front of them and dumped down some beautiful deposits, even to the point where they actually shoved the chalk up and over the post-flood glacial till. So you've actually got flood rocks on top of place. I mean, it's a mess and it's all being shoved sideways. Um, layer upon layer upon layer yeah definitely catastrophic definitely formed by flowing water but this is a local deposit and it even contains human artifacts it's a post-flood deposit for sure well i'm going to finish my presentation there because me and john are going to sort of go through part five have a little bit of a chat back and forth to kind of wrap this all up and then we'll throw it open to questions we've got plenty of time for questions and i'm sure we've got many of them uh, we're going to try and keep it on this issue of sedimentation versus stratigraphy versus noah's flood versus all of the above so i'll finish there if i can escape there we go and bring you back John. in a moment uh, you got my microphone on there donnie yes you're good now john okay uh there's a question from sam burns here which needs to be got out of the road first because uh sam you're like me we have a confusion with layers and time and orientation now it is true your question are the two miles of different layers in the grand canyon flat or sideways now, the Grand Canyon is not quite two miles deep at any spot, but it's certainly pr plenty wide. And I've crossed it and walked up and down it many, many times. So there's definitely layers there. There's definitely a section at the bottom, which is without fossils. And the top half has definitely got a lot of fossils. And some sections only have fossil footprints. Uh, the Coconino sandstone um, with, with its big internal dunes there. Other two miles of different layers in the Grand Canyon's flat or sideways. Well, if you look at the Coconino, the top's flat, the bottom's flat. Internally, you've got dune-type formation. Uh, as you go up and down the system or along the system, you notice one thing. Many of the layers are actually flat. Now, that's a geometric observation. It's got nothing to do with your question about sideways, uh, as in having been tipped sideways, the layers are not sideways. Right, the layers are flat. Uh, well, that's not quite true because if you stand on one side, you can see onto the other side, and you'll actually see one side is slightly higher than the other. And the best explanation at the moment is after they were deposited post flood, they've lifted up in the center, cracked, and then your water coming down from the top post flood has dug that big hole out. Uh, so th there's there is some curvature to the uh, uh, east west sort of. Uh, distri distribution, north-south, etc. So you'll find there are technically flat layers. Are they sideways? No, the flat layers are horizontal uh, in perspective, but in terms of my professor's statement, they've grown sideways. Now, when you look at our strata machine, that's exactly what we've seen. It's exactly what uh, Guy Bateau saw. It's exactly what Volta encountered when he first came up to this, looking at the layers in the Venice um, Delta. The layers are sideways, 
but they the layers are sorry flat horizontally but they actually age sideways they form here and they get older uh, they get younger as you go down the whole system so distinguish between the geometric position versus the age question they are two separate questions now i thought i'd just finish joseph's done a pretty good job giving you a way to think about it i'm going to put up a powerpoint now uh donnie whoops let's go back one went too far all right now there is the orthodox geologic column again to comment if we didn't start this in england we wouldn't have words like cambria uh, if we've got the geologic column all nicely sorted out and all the fossils of trilobites and that in the Cambrian, when you come to Australia and you've got a definition that says anything under the Cambrian is unfossiliferous, you can therefore recognise the fossils in the Cambrian and you label the Australian rocks Cambrian and then you come up with a bit of a shock. There are layers underneath that which actually have fossils as well. So what do you call them? Pre-Cambrian? Uh, should you give them a different name? But in reality, it makes the point that I was trying to make before. If you started the geologic column in Australia, you would have different names. If you started it in China, you'd have a whole different history. But the big point is uh, the bit that Joseph made. He didn't show you some of the fossils of the thorns he found in the Pennsylvanian. I'm actually really jealous. I personally have not found a thorn in the Pennsylvania. I found all the others. We even took those uh, fossils from the Ordovician. I took them up into Canada to speak to a world expert on fossil thorns, he was adamant that they actually were fossil thorns. They were the world's oldest fossil thorns. But you see, to him, that meant they were Devonian. He judged the age of the rock by the fossil. It's in its standard fallacy of evolution. And when we said sorry, our guide on that day was a, a guy who's worked for the geological division in Tennessee. So I rang him on the spot. He said, no, they are on the maps as Ordovician. You can follow them all the way through into Canada as Ordovician. So we hold the record. I hold the record. Joseph's got samples of it. We have the world's oldest on the evolutionary scale, the world's oldest on the orthodox geological column. We have the first thorns in the fossil record. Land plants mixed with seashells. Definitely flood-type deposition. But you see, if you look at the question with biblical perspective and say, how would you recognize fossils? How would you recognize layers formed after Adam came onto the planet, after sin? Well, they've got thorns in them. So you can't say the Ordovician is the end of the creation week because it's got dead things in it and it's got fossil thorns in it. The thorns are the dead giveaway. They're those awful little thorns. Have you ever picked up some of those cacti plants with the tiny hairy spines? They are murder. These Sordonias would have been murdered to actually grab a specimen of. Um, but they're there. They're in the Ordovician. We found them all the way up to the Cretaceous. I don't think you were there that day, Joseph, but remember when we're going down under the White Cliffs of Dover, I found a beautiful specimen in the grey sort of marley stuff underneath the main limestone, had a lovely shark's tooth in. Then I back up another specimen, and it's got a thorn in it, a thorn on a stem. So whether it's the yeah, can, we just, can I just jump in very quickly, John, sure. and make another point, right? Because I wasn't there that day, but you took me back there again, 
right? You took me there a second time. And one of the things that we try and say is if you find something once, then fair enough. But how do you know that it's not an anomaly? You see, you took me back there again. And not only did we go to the same deposit and start digging through the same rocks, you found uh, another thorn on that second time as well. So it's not just a one-off occurrence. We're finding these regularly and multiple of them. Uh, and it's the same with the thorns in the Ordovician, right? We found them in three or four different locations. And every yeah. time we've been back there, we found more examples. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. That Ordovician rock sits on the Cambrian type layers. And you know from drilling, because one of our guys is an oil geologist, how deep it is down to the top of the granite, the sort of uh, archaic granite, the pre-Cambrian -pre type granite. So we know that we are dealing specifically with Ordovician. So you can't say that's the end of the creation week. What you need to say is the biblical picture is no thorns till Adam's sin. So if you find layers, whether you call it Ordovician or Cretaceous, you'll find you have to say from a biblical perspective, we're in biblical glasses. Now God sees everything. He's got it straight on. We have to put his glasses on. The presence of thorns, the presence of hard thorns, because I've got thorny um ferns that grow up my greenhouse but the thorns are just little clingers they could be thorns if they went hard when the plant dries out they almost become thorns but they're still soft now you find that these are hard enough to actually impenetrate you so they're proper thorns so that's not the boundary of the end of the creation week at all so look for things that are there only after the biblical record reveals the real history of the planet and the point that joseph made in noah's flood is the second time the world was covered with water. And if you want to know the importance of this, just to finish, before we take some other questions, all of those rocks from the Ordovician onwards, and we're still looking for ones in the Cambrian, correct, Joe? Oh, yes. I wonder if we will find them. I suspect we will because of the huge number of dead things that are in the uh, Cambrian rocks there, all formed after Adam's sin, and that's what makes this very relevant. Look what's on Jesus' head. Right. Do you, do you realize that when he died on the cross, which we celebrate again next week, even though the timing is pagan and all these sort of things in terms of the Easter name, you'll find that he put thorns on his head or the Roman soldiers did thinking that they were just punishing him. Well, they were in one sense, but they didn't realize that with sin came death and with death came thorns and killing and bloodshed. And the whole good news of Christianity is that the same Jesus will return, there will be no more curse. What was the curse? The curse was the putting of thorns on the planet. So if you find fossil rocks with layers of thorns in, then you are dealing with rocks that are post-curse. Curse is Adam's day. So all of these rocks are post-Adam, not uh, just the end of creation week. And I'm personally looking forward, particularly as my poor body ages, as my memory starts to fail, um, I'm looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth where there'll be no bloodshed, no killing, no death, and the roses won't have thorns. So that's a good place to stop and to uh, take some questions now, Donnie, uh, in the uh, time we have left. What are we? 10 after 10, we've done, or 10 after 10 in Australia anyway. So we've done fairly well. Yes, you gentlemen have uh, amazing endurance. There is so much awesome information here, very important information. And again, I want to point out lots of uh, compliments and good feedback from the chat. This has been an epic conference. So thank you so much uh, for all the research and work you've done, uh, John and Joe. So 
I've got I've got the questions here in the side chat, and John, you just answered Sam Burns' question. So yep. why don't we go with? Um, uh, here's a another short and sweet one from Sean Mock, and what I'll do uh, for ease of answering these, I'll put them up on screen. And here's a question from Sean Mock. He asks, "Were there geologic layers pre-flood?" Okay, think carefully what you've just asked. Pre-flood means from creation through to Adam, from Adam up to the start of Noah's flood. Do we have any events that could have formed layers? The answer is yes, but they're not usually thought of in terms of creationist geology. Day one, God makes the heavens and the earth. Day two, the earth is covered with waters. You split the waters below and the waters above. Day three, now listen carefully, day three, the waters go off the surface of the earth and the dry land rises up. And if the inside comes out, the outside must go in. Now think carefully. We are talking about a maximum of a couple of hours for God to bring dry land out from underneath the earth. And therefore the water will run off. Now, most people can't imagine what water does. Water, unlike ice, remember the glacial deposits Joseph talked about? The water actually does not push. Ice pushes and it creates big, big, big berms of rubble and stones and no fossil layers at all much. Uh, water has already got layers in it, but it doesn't erode by its layers. Here's how it erodes. Go and get yourself one of those kids' arrows and bows. You know, the ones with the rubber suckers on the end? and wet it and then shoot it on the wall, just like your mother told you not to do, and then pull it off, just like your father said, I'll belt you if you do that, because coming with it is the, 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 the paint. Coming with it is the plaster, because water actually erodes by sucking. If you have water running over a surface, even if it was hard rock, as it runs over the surface, it will pluck things out. Then the layers already being present will begin to organize it. So if you can imagine big boulders of granite or whatever God had made the earth of being tumbled along in the water and becoming part of actually layered system, then you will have non-fossiliferous layered material forming in creation week. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. I mean, it would be catastrophic. That's why my professor said he didn't want to talk about catastrophic things like the flood and creation. He probably knew a lot more about what the creation week was all about. His generation grew up with the knowledge of the creation week. Now most people don't, including most Christians. So yes, you have potential on day three where the earth is uplifted for producing vast quantities on a global scale of non-fossiliferous pulverized rock. Um, you know, so you could, you could produce that. And then your next layers will be produced only at the start of the flood where the fountains of the deep break open the rain comes down 40 days and 40 nights, land goes down, land comes up, water runs off. So multiple episodes and uh, multiple pulses in the second one, way longer than the couple of hours it took on the first uh, day you had such a process. Joseph? I think you pretty much, uh, pretty much covered it up there, John, to be fair. Okay. Yes, again, Johnny? another... Another thorough answer to a good question. So I appreciate just how uh, engaged the chat has been. The chat is very, very lively. 
And uh, a lot have, have admitted, and, and myself, this was so comprehensive. I look forward to uh, re-watching and, and re-listening. So uh, here's a common objection. Here, here's a question from, from a critic in the chat. And she asks, or uh, essentially states, there are billions of fossils in many of the Grand Canyon rocks. But these fossils are not the jumbled mess that one would expect from a turbulent global flood. Is, is that what we we would expect? And is this a valid objection, gentlemen? Okay, I'll go first. Joseph can go second. I've uh, walked in the Grand Canyon, looked at all the fossils in the shales and things like that, found fossil footprints in the Grand Canyon, down the bottom, by the way, not up the top in the Coconino. Um, you can actually see some of these on our website. So go to creationresearch.net, look up research, look up fossils, and sooner or later you'll come across these footprints that look like big amphibian footprints that shouldn't be there by the way question you have a picture of a flood where the water is turbulent now in reality the water may start out turbulent but within a fraction of a foot a fraction of a meter a fraction of a kilometer it's going to be layered the layers are already there think of our strata experiments we put the water and the sediment together we then pass it through a venturi, a venturi pump, where everything is mixed up together. Why did we do that? Remember the first pictures? The boys were taking a shovel full of sand and then putting it in the machine. And as a result, of course, we thought, okay, potential criticism. The guys putting it in one after the other with a small pulse of time between, that's responsible for the layers, dark light, dark light. We had to avoid that. So we throw it all in the one basket. The Venturi pump stirs it all up. So by the time it leaves the Venturi pump, it is chaos, right? Within a fraction of a second, the nature of the water has taken over and the layers are forming in the liquid itself before it's actually laid down. So when you're looking at a flood, you do not expect, except maybe that fraction of a second, the sort of turbulent mass you are being told about. You will actually get that when water plummets over a waterfall, just for a short period of time. When layers are dumped in an ice flow, you'll get that, but it will not be the result of a flood at all. And I'll be honest, the layers in the Grand Canyon certainly are well organized as layers. The layers in the Grand Canyon are certainly going fast enough to cover up footprints and keep them there before they're eroded away. Uh, so I'll start there, Joseph. I'll finish there, Joe. Anything, comments from you? Yeah, well, I'd say I'm at a slight disadvantage because I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but um, like I say, John shared with me much of his uh, information, and what I'll do is I'll make a little connection between some of the fossils in the Grand Canyon and another deposit which I do know very well, and that is some of the nautiloid fossils. Now, nautiloid fossils are elongated fossils. They're sort of cone-shaped fossils. Um, they are related to a squid, but the difference is they have a hard outer shell and the squid-like creature lives inside the shell and it propels itself along with the point of the cone kind of going backwards from the creature, right? Now, these nautiloids are found all throughout the Grand Canyon. They're also found all throughout the Atlas Mountain Devonian rocks, uh, sort of like that, that kind of uh, crossover from the Devonian up into the Carboniferous. 
they're found here in the uh, in the UK as well. They've uh, found up in Tennessee along some of the uh, limestone deposits that we've been digging out, uh, digging out and talking about tonight as well. They're wonderful fossils, and they are in their abundance. I mean, talking about hundreds of billions of these fossils in a single deposit, and it's quite famous from the. Uh, Grand Canyon, because a lot of research has been done to them, they're all pointing in the same direction. Right? So you've got elongated fossils pointing in the same direction. First year of geology, or early second year, I think perhaps, uh, one of the major principles we dealt with was working out whether a fossil deposit showed evidence of transportation. And there it was in Koe Al, uh, the textbook that I was reading at the time, elongated fossils like trees or nautiloids, or belemnites, pointing in the same direction means these have been buried under flow. Not slow, gradual accumulation of calcareous ooze slowly over millions of years compressing into limestone. This has been formed under flowing waters, by water flowing sideways, carrying that slurry of sediment with all of the layers already uh, present inside the water, burying and flowing and dumping them down together, pointing in the same direction. So you'll find this in the Grand Canyon. Um, it's not a turbulent mess. It's an organized flow of water. They're all pointing in pretty much the same direction. And you find that, I mean, everybody hears the Grand Canyon because the Grand Canyon is I mean, it is pretty spectacular, right? And I've uh, traveled to many of the canyons in the area, never quite got to the Grand Canyon. Lord willing, we'll be there at some point in the past. But I'll be honest with you, um, I'm not overly impressed with some of the fossils from it. I mean, I'd love to go there and see it, and it's spectacular. But if you really want abundance of brilliantly preserved fossils, go to Morocco. It's far, far better there, in my opinion. And we have hundreds, uh, and even, in fact, we'd be on now on the thousands, of fossils from Morocco, including these nautiloids. And I know John, or Orthocerus is their technical name. I know you've, John, got a, a huge, great big slab. We've got a huge, great big slab amongst many, many others. And they're brilliant because they're in a very, very dense limestone, so they can be polished up and look shiny and beautiful and wonderful. And they're all pointing in the same direction. So it goes back to what John says, exactly what you'd expect if this is a mass flowing deposit moving sideways carrying the slurry carrying the sediment carrying the fossils pointing them in the same direction transporting and burying them under flow and dumping them down very very quickly and not what you'd expect in the slightest if it was a slow gradual accumulation of calcareous ooze so there's another little perspective from the fossils i'm going to sneak in a commercial here donnie because we mentioned easter if you haven't yet got our book walking through genesis with jesus you will find the connect the dots uh, argument we've been using all the time with thorns and Christ and the geologic column, etc. You'll find it very helpful to pick up that from either the USA or England or Australia. It is available in all places. Uh, I'd encourage you to go to the bookshop there. Uh, and also this one. Joe helped write this one, Tights, Mites and Fossil Fights, dealing with rapid fossils, etc. And you'll find that very helpful as well. So pick up the resources, make use of them share them around next one donnie i love it you guys have such fantastic resources and i'll make sure that those links the relevant links are all in the description box for people to check out <coughs> excuse me and also go uh, support the ministry okay so the next question that comes in is from cool jesus and uh, cool jesus i appreciate the the question here so he says uh, standing for truth i assume joe slash john trust archaeology and geology back to the time of Abraham. Uh, 
So what is the lowest layer rocks we know are post-flood? Your turn, Joe. My turn. Um, archaeology and geology is interesting back to the time of Abraham. Um, I'm part of a, a discussion group at the moment uh, associated uh, academically where we're discussing things like Egyptian chronologies. And, of course, the Egyptian chronologies is the basis for uh, in the secular minds anyway it's the basis for determining all of the other chronology in the archaeology and one thing you know for sure it doesn't matter who you uh, listen to or who you go to the whole thing's a mess i mean when you see it in when you open your you know university textbook or you go to a museum and you see a beautiful timeline uh, in the british museum that's just the surface of it if you dig down beyond that there are academics pulling their hair out about it right and uh, john osgood who's done some fantastic resources on chronology um, will say that basically most people have got the wrong chronology. You need to start with scripture and move out of there. So, you, yes, we do trust archaeology and geology back to the time of Abraham in one sense, but you've still got to bear in mind that if anything's coming from a secular source, most of the time it's still using those Lyellian um, kind of thinking of the present is the key to the past, uh, that uniformitarianism, and you've got to be very, very wary of tripping up over that. Okay, in terms of the lowest layer rocks we know that are post-flood again be wary of that term lowest layer you're still thinking in the format of Char of Steno's principle of superposition as in the top is the youngest the bottom is the oldest so as we dig down through you get to bottom now that is certainly true in some archaeological uh, uh, places right in some archaeological circumstances it is true the top got there last, the bottom got there first. And if you come with me to York, right, a brilliant place full of archaeology, the original one, by the way, in England, not the new one, and you start digging down the layers, right, the first thing you come to is the Victorian uh, archaeology. Then you keep digging down and you get to the medieval archaeology. And you keep digging down and you get to the... Um, uh, Jorvik, the, 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 the Viking archaeology, and you keep digging down and finally you get to the Roman stuff. And there's a reason for this. There's a delta there as part of the um, uh, the river, which has constantly been flooding year after year, and it's been piling up this sediment. And then when people get flooded, they just knock their house down and build on top of it. And so human interaction has built this up in layers that you can say, yes, the top layer did get there last, the bottom layer did get there first. But then if you come over to Norfolk, where I am, right, where the topsoil is very, very thin, where we don't have many big rivers and we very, very rarely flood. There's not many floodplains uh, where we are, right, up in North Norfolk. You can come out to my uh, back garden and start digging down and you can find modern pottery buried next to Victorian pottery, buried next to Viking pottery, and it's all on the same layer. It's all at the top, subsurface, uh, on, on the soil, right? So you've got to be careful with saying, right, well, let's find the lowest layer because it's different depending on where you are or depending on how sediments has, has, has built up. Okay, uh, Abraham's a bit of a, a, a strange sort of reference to throw in there because we can certainly go before the time of Abraham to a certain, uh, a certain sense. If you remember back to what I was saying, look at the size of deposits, look at is it global in extent, is it local in extent? I mean, the glacial deposits were 
sometime after the Tower of Babel, probably within a few hundred years of the Tower of Babel, so a bit of a time before uh, Abraham, and this is when you have this glacial stuff shoving these rocks forward and dumping them down, pushing them over and forming this glacial till. At some point you'll have the melting waters of the ice uh, causing all sorts of minor catastrophes, burying basins full of this clay silty sediment, definitely catastrophic and burying my paleotherium jaw, right, which we're doing a whole range of tests including carbon-14 on, so that should be very interesting. Um, and so you've got to try and make sure you're not getting trapped into this, present is the key to the past, principle of superposition where's the lowest we can go you're asking really the wrong question there in, in one sense john any comments yes so remember the uh, fossil skull you had to repair because somebody dropped it and it wasn't me um oh, indeed. yeah <laughs> that's right well that comes from the area up in the darling downs and you don't expect to find any whole skeletons there because it is definitely post-flood uh it is definitely where the creatures have lived They've lived in an area that was much wetter than it is today. Uh, there's been sufficient food to feed these huge monsters, giant kangaroos, giant wombats, five times the size they, they are now. And yet when they've died, the ground has been soggy enough, wet enough, acid enough, so their body has been preserved, but not perfectly. It has not been buried rapidly. So one of the characteristics you'd be looking for, for the oldest layer that's post-flood, is the evidence of non-rapid burial. This book we were showing you before of tight smites and fossilites deals a lot with flood fossils, which are characterized by either being buried active, so the fish are actually grabbing a, um, a fish in their mouth, or more importantly, the flood deposits are squashing the fish out of their mouth, they're vomiting. But in the case of the giant marsupials on the Darling Downs, there's a jaw here, there's a leg bone there, and maybe a foot or two away, third of a metre. And, and likewise, they have dissembled. They've, they've become separated. They are not flood deposits. So you'll find, nevertheless, this is quite large over the Darling Downs, but you need to use that as your set of glasses. We have not far from my house a deposit which includes some giant crocodiles. Not as giant as the ones in the real fossil record, if you want to call it that, but nevertheless, the Oxley deposit is big enough to be regarded as a separate deposit. We came across fossil crocodiles when we were putting the new bridge over the river. Uh, big bear? No, really just a regional one, more like Joseph's uh, little beds up there on the top of the north of the Isle of Wight, but big enough to be noticeable, big enough to be mapped, but most of the deposits are actually fallen apart because they weren't buried far enough. So if you want to know, uh, uh, to answer your question, look for the evidence of slow burial, fast enough to preserve, but not fast enough to trap real detail. More great responses, John and Joe. Right here, this next question, or I should say objection or uh, purported challenge to the uh, flood model uh, comes in. I've, I've seen this in, in a variety of ways. So the uh, questioner says, in the Grand Canyon, we find trilobite feeding marks indicative of a calm, shallow sea bottom. There are preserved footprints and tail marks that vertebrates made while walking over wet sand dunes. Any thoughts on that, uh, gentlemen? Well, I'll comment on the second half. Joseph's at a bit of a loss over the first half, so I'll, I'll take the second half because of just an experiment we did recently with our strata machine. 
we made underwater dunes. Now, if you go scuba diving in Moreton Bay, you'll see there's dunes on the bottom of the sea, but they're not doing anything. Sometimes there's trail marks over them. Sometimes they're just sterile. They're barren. And many of them will actually move with tidal currents, etc. So we didn't intend to do this. It just happened when we accidentally changed the velocity of the water at the same time as we ran out of sediment. And we were amazed. The actual surface of the sand, you know, the layers you saw in our strata machine, the top one became dunate. And the dunes moved along the surface that we'd actually made. And then we thought, okay, let's change the speed of this um, fluid again. And as we changed the speed, what happened, the sand actually moved over the top. It didn't push the dunes out of the way. It just buried them. Okay, now most people don't appreciate that the footprints in the dunes, and I assume you're referring to the Coconino sandstone, are largely on one side. Now, that is inexplicable unless, of course, you have a current that's determining which side is safe to walk up. Uh, and what we found was the white sand that we pumped in actually moved over the dune and then covered it up straight away. If you'd have had critters walking up that left-hand side or the, the down current side of the dunes, you would have preserved their footprints instantly. Of course, if they reached the top, then you'd wash them away in the current. The current just continued. Interesting, in the Coconino sandstone, you don't have any bones that I know of at the present time. So something has removed the critters. It has to be moving water. It's fast enough and strong enough to shift them right out of the picture, but yet it's gone fast enough to dump stuff and preserve the sediments, uh, preserve the footprints so you can actually see them. Um, so you'll find that the Grand Canyon dunes, etc., even with their footprints, yes, you will have a temporary uh, calm position there, and it doesn't matter whether you, you, you've got the whole picture or not. Remember the point we've made, Joseph's made it, you get pulses. You'll get pulses in the Grand Canyon, no matter which way the water came. You'll get pulses from just two tides a day. You get pulses from a new explosion of fountains of the deep coming up through the actual already soft strata, but you have to cover up everything and it has to be quick. Now, if you're wondering whether you can recognize flood deposits with trilobites, I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and I mean that literally, of rolled, semi-rolled and flat trilobites. Why did I bother collecting them? Well, I've got trilobite trails, and at the end of it, you'll find a trilobite. The whole thing's covered up, and it was fast enough so that the trilobite could not react. It was fast enough so its tracks would be preserved. But then you've got some that's been a bit slower and you'll find the trilobite has started to curve and some probably a bit further down the current that said, "Uh oh, brother Sammy's just got buried. I better do something. You'll find he's curved over a bit further. And then you find a whole bed and they're all rolled up. So you actually see a progression of a current moving and trapping the trilobites, some so they couldn't protect themselves at all. The protection mechanism of things like the isopod family that are similar to the trilobites is to roll up, but they need time to do that. Not very long. I've watched them. I've touched them. They roll up real fast. So this is actually a rapid speed event where you've actually caught some, they're still straight. Caught others, they've just started. Caught more, they've gone like that. And some have actually rolled and stayed tight and been preserved in, well, I call it petrified trilobites, totally frightened to death. 
Uh, so you do find evidence of that rapid type deposition, even where there are trails. And to be blunt, if there are no no rapid deposition, you won't get trails. Well, I'll just add one quick comment onto that because there's one other way that you can find these uh, trial by trackways, and I found them from the uh, Ordovician uh, in Morocco, and we get huge amounts of fossils come from there we can go through. And uh, also in, um, I believe it was called King's Canyon, John, in Central Australia where we went there, and I found all those trial bike trails, right? What you'll often find, as well as this kind of progression that John's talking about of a flat trial bike, half-roll trial bike, fully-roll trial bike, sort of at the end of the sediment, there's also evidence that these got this freshly laid sediment, uh, and it's got to be fresh in order to leave a trail, right? It's got to be soft, and you have the trilobite walking through it, leaving the trail, it appears that they've been covered up, and you actually see the trilobite trying to dig up through the sediment that's just been laid down, through the layer, trying to get out on top, the most recent pulse, right? And then you find all of a sudden, all these trilobites are doing the same thing, and so you'll get a layer where you have all of the trackways, and then on top of the next layer, you'll find all the trilobites. Now, that's not slow gradual that's not calm ecosystem that's a rapidly forming deposit with animals desperately trying to escape oncoming sedimentation and uh, to a final loss at the end because they end up getting buried in huge great big beds so you'll find lots of evidence like this a lot of it comes down to the way that you actually view the evidence and again present key to the past don't fall into that trap just because we see things happening in a calm environment today you can't automatically match that up to what you see in the fossil record i'll add an interesting comment of that joe because uh, i've seen that with even dinosaur tracks and reptile tracks i was really puzzled i'm in nova scotia up those cliffs i showed you before and here's a set of, tr of uh, reptile tracks tiny little ones but then all of a sudden they disappeared i thought that's strange how come it just stops? And then I moved up and a little further over, and here's the exact same tracks, about that much higher with no start. So here they are. Then you've got a, a, almost like a mini cliff, and there's the tracks again. Something has happened in which the animal has had to move up. Now, we didn't have the progression like that in the incoming flow, but we certainly had the best explanation of showing two layers like that is that this creature here had moved up there. And I, I puzzled about this for ages, and no one could explain it to me until I sat down. You know those, those nice V-shaped um, uh, bays, Joseph, where the water gets deeper and deeper and deeper as, as you yeah. bring the tide in, and it sometimes raises up 60 or 70 feet, 20 metres or so? I sat down rather foolishly watching the water come in so rapidly. At the same time as I sat down, there was one of those little sandpipers jumping along the floor and poking into the mud but the mud was what had been deposited in the last tide right now in these big 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 borehole bore bore tidal sections you deposit one two three four five centimeters of mud in a tide so i was watching this going along the top of the previous mud and then the tide started to come in but it did one interesting thing as we got a tidal surge you actually eroded the, the, the mud it was walking on, and all of a sudden, there was a new layer of mud. And what you saw was then clip, 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 jump, clip, clip, clip. Ah, here's what we've got, a rapid surge of water producing two layers of footprints 
from exactly the same creatures. And if you used your standard geologic model, this second set of footprints must have been thousands of years after the first one. And it wasn't. It was merely one more pulse of flood water. Now, Donnie, I, I've got a similar problem to yesterday, so you have to excuse me. I've got somebody coming in five minutes. So it's been great to be with you. Hope you folks out there are blessed. Keep Joseph going for a few moments, and we'll look forward to seeing you again, particularly after we have our Easter camp down in the bush in Victoria. So look up our website, creationresearch.net, and if you're down there, come and join us for Easter in the bush as we deal with not only fossils on a field trip, but the great importance of the thorns and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Great to see you again. Amen, brother. Fantastic stuff. Great to see you as well. Your ministry is, is always in our prayers. Uh, you guys are such a huge blessing, uh, John. So we will let you get out of here. I appreciate all the work and time uh, for this conference. So God bless John, and we'll talk to you later. Okay, Joe, it's just you and I, brother. We can get through just a couple more questions and, and kind of wind it down well, here. It's, uh, it's sort of 20 to 2 in the morning here. So we'll... Uh, <laughs> Okay, how about we do sometime soon? <laughs> yes, yes, we're going to wrap it up. We're going on okay. two and a half hours plus the two plus hours yesterday. That is a nearly five hour uh, two day event. Mm -hmm. And this event was packed with information with some of the best answers I've ever heard uh, coming from you, Joe, and uh, John Mackay, the creation guy. So let's wind it down with this last question from one of our supporters. I did look through and we pretty well addressed every single one of these major objections and challenges. So this was very thorough and uh, we'll just kind of wrap it up here with, with one final question, this coming in from Michael who, and uh, he says, I've got it up on screen. He says pre-flood continent centralized areas like here in S E N C North, North Carolina, I guess with only light Marine fossils. Is there a reason places like this seem to be so stripped of non-marine fossils and are so close to, hmm, I think I might have, uh, oh, so close to sea level is what he said. I'll be honest with you. I'm not fully understanding the question. Um, centralized areas. So if that is Southeast New North Carolina, um, you've predominantly got uh, what we would classify there as a post-flood. North Carolina, you have a lot of the clays. And out of places like from North Carolina, and also very similar to places like in Florida, you get, it's definitely post-flood because it's a very localized deposit. Uh, so you have got an environmental thing because you're not transporting environments across continents like you are with the flood deposits. You're keeping it fairly local. You get mastodons uh, dug out of the clays here uh, in places like Florida, very similar to what you've got up in North Carolina. You also get shark teeth, especially from North Carolina, uh, the giant megalodon shark teeth as well. So we're definitely looking at a localized deposit. We're probably looking at some kind of massive basin where you've got these creatures living and uh, as a likelihood from the flood uh, i mean the ice age itself we have a whole program on the ice age it's essentially a uh, massive climate change as the result of noah's flood and you've got a bursting of the banks and the water from the ice age as it melts washing down and dumping into these basins you've got much larger basins in uh, the usa than canada than you do in the uk that's just because you've got more land mass right 
a whole load of our landmass basins have been eroded away, like Doggerland, which is the bit which connects um, Norfolk to, uh, to to France. So you're definitely looking at a localised deposit. So that's your first clue as to why it's all marine. You're not actually transporting currents uh, and sediment across continents. So if you come to the Jurassic in the UK, it's definitely a continental flood deposit. I mean, the Jurassic goes the same in Germany. It's the same in Australia, right? And it contains trees and it contains dinosaurs and it contains sea dragons the marine ichthyosaurs and uh, plesiosaurs and pliosaurs right it contains masses amounts of seashells it's a mixed flood dump whereas what you're looking at in places like north carolina is a much more local deposit an environment which is being over the course of most likely a few hundred years, you've got creatures living and dying. Some of the hard parts, like the teeth, are being preserved, but it still takes a fairly large but local catastrophe to actually bury it. So that's kind of what you're looking like in that situation, if that is North Carolina, if it's as, you're, as you're talking about. Yes, great response, and uh, Michael Hu approved. So I appreciate that, Indiana Joe. As we are now going on two hours and 35 minutes, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. I am looking through the questions, challenges, and objections, and I think uh, we've done a thorough job at addressing them all for the most part. So, uh, Joe, I want to hand it over to you for some final thoughts, final words. I can say I had a blast. I was excited for this. And uh, Joe, it was well worth the wait. This was very comprehensive. And uh, your team is a blessing. So Joe, some final words. And thanks again for this. Just a couple of quick things then. If you are interested, make sure you come and watch us on a weekly basis over at Creation Conversations. Also going out tomorrow is our evidence news broadcast. We've started doing evidence news broadcasts out on uh, YouTube as well. Uh, the evidence news is free to sign up to. It comes through to your email. Great great resource there but it's also going out as a uh, video broadcast as well myself and diane being featured uh, excuse me so check that out follow us at the creation research youtube channel where we go out on a weekly basis as well and i believe i saw a comment from sam earlier um sam uh, who was suggesting that we take a number of questions that we didn't get time to deal with in this nearly five hour long conference <laughs> and uh use it on creation conversations which i think is a great idea we have questions i mean creation conversations is heavily based around questions uh but every sort of six weeks we dedicate an entire program just to questions and answers so we'll certainly get through a lot more of them if not all of them um so make sure you come and head over and join us there other than that thank you very much for having me um keep searching keep digging keep looking and we'll uh, yeah we'll catch you catch you next time amen well said indiana joe i've got all of uh, the relevant links uh in the description box for people to check out so please make sure you are subscribed to uh creation conversations that takes place on the creation research youtube channel and uh utilize their resources and check out their websites they have answers to many of these fantastic questions joe i'll save these uh these questions in a document and and, and i'll send them over to uh, sam or, or or yourself so Thank you again. I'm going to stick around just for a couple minutes, just kind of give again some updates, reminders. And uh, Joe, we're going to let you get to bed because, uh, you know, you've earned it. <laughs> You're a blessing, brother. So I'm God gonna bless you. Catch okay, you later. We'll, Thank you we'll all very much. God bless. Okay, well, that uh, that wraps things up, guys. Uh, there we go. The two-day much-anticipated event on flood boundaries 
with uh, Standing for Truth Ministries and the Creation Research Team. Uh, the Creation Research Team are a huge blessing. They are putting out some fantastic material and they are providing some of the best answers, I believe, in the world of young earth creation. Their research is amazing, so please consider supporting them. Uh, this conference has exceeded my expectations, and if you uh, like what you're seeing from the collaboration between our ministry and the Creation Research Ministry, check the playlist titled uh, Creation Research Team on Standing for Truth, and we've had them on a dozen times now. And uh, if you're new to the channel, you've got probably 20 hours worth of material uh, between us and the creation research team. And we've touched on some fantastic topics, some very important topics. This was the most comprehensive uh, conference I think we've done. We've now hosted, I believe, three or four conferences, most of them having to do with uh, flood geology because it's just so important. And uh, the flood boundaries issue is, is kind of controversial. Uh, amongst young earth creationists as there are a variety of ideas and models. So uh, please consider the information that uh, you've um, seen here and hopefully you've absorbed a lot of the information and share around this content, guys, because this topic is so important. We touched on the history and theory of sedimentation, sediment formation, the boundaries of the flood, pre, post, and, and the, the flood itself. Uh, we dealt with a huge number of objections from, from the critics, as well as uh, just engaged a large number of uh, questions and challenges that I believe are important for fellow uh, young earth creationists to kind of engage uh, and discuss. Uh, just looking uh, through the chat, God bless you guys. I appreciate all the great uh, feedback. Uh, specifically Cool Jesus, I really appreciate your questions uh, because they were uh, well-informed, they were sophisticated, and a, and a ton of fun to uh, engage. So definitely God bless you for that. On Saint for Truth, when we host these conferences and, and um, interviews and, and presentations, we do um, like to be interactive, as you know, because my favorite kinds of conferences and, and presentations and events are those that address the audience as well. Those that not only give a presentation, but also have, have a time, as you've seen here over the course of, of this last five hours in this conference, where we can engage the critics, we can answer challenges, we can um, answer clarifying questions. Because when you don't do these live, unfortunately, you don't get that, that opportunity. So that's what we like to do here. That's always been my favorite kinds of, of events and presentations. And uh, that's why I have strive to uh, host those types of events as well. So again, reminders though, the fun doesn't end. I'm taking tomorrow off because I think the last week, I feel like all we've done is, is streamed. We've had a ton of shows. Last week, we had two massive debates, two main events in the same week. We had a huge interview with Dr. Jerry Bergman. Love to see uh, the great feedback on that. It's already at a couple thousand views. And uh, looks like Dr. Jerry Bergman's going to be another regular. So he's going to be here again next uh, month. I've got it all set up here. Uh, Neanderthals, Evidence for Evolution or Biblical Creation. So we have a number of uh, fantastic topics we are going to be hosting with Dr. Jerry Bergman. So if you have not yet seen that one, please do. 
check it out. And uh, although we have tomorrow off, what I'll be doing is a lot of behind the scenes work. I've scheduled uh, quite a few more debates in our 2022 evolution debate series. And uh, I'm going to be putting those up on the event section and hopefully up on the website soon as well. So we'll be doing behind the scenes work tomorrow. And uh, we will be back here, though, the very next day for the Evolution Debate Challenge series as it continues. I believe debate roughly number 20 in the series. So uh, epic showdown here. Is there reasonable scientific evidence for evolution? Taylor Gray. Uh, from the Snake Was Right, right YouTube channel. He is the next uh, challenger in this series. And speaking of Taylor Gray, uh, if you loved what you've what you seen from Joseph Hubbard here and uh, John Mackay, the creation guy, probably about a year ago now, uh, I hosted and moderated a formal debate between Snake Was Right and Joseph Hubbard on the flood and young earth creation. And to date, that's one of my favorite debates that uh, we have hosted and I have moderated here and we've hosted 170 debates. So uh, point is, please check that out. That was a very sophisticated debate. And uh, both Joe and Taylor touched on so many important and interesting topics. Then the very next day, the fun continues as well as we have the much anticipated debate. I believe we scheduled this over uh, maybe three months ago. So this is uh, the Genesis flood debate. Jason Torn and Professor David McQueen, our very own Professor David McQueen, our team geologist, uh, they are going to be debating the Genesis flood. This one is going to be sophisticated. Uh, two scientists here, well-studied, well-educated individuals discussing this important topic. So that being said, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, Mitchell, brother, I appreciate the $10 super chat. He says, best channel out there. Uh, I appreciate that. Guys, you are all the life and blood of this channel and our amazing uh, supporters. Remember, this is a listener-supported ministry. And uh, you guys are the life and blood of this channel and ministry. And it's why we can uh, put out full-time content because uh, your blessings and your support has allowed us to uh, work full-time in in, in the ministry. So uh, looking at the chat, guys, again, thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. This was a ton of fun. I am going to rewatch it. I look forward to it. And please share this around. Share it in your Facebook group. Share it on your channels. Uh, part one's already over, I think, 1.1 thousand views. This, this information is important. And uh, that's what we do here on Saying for Truth. We believe in critical thinking. That's why we host these events. And that's why we host so many debates. Uh, but we also uh, believe, of course, in defending the truth of biblical creation. So God bless everybody. I appreciate it as well. And thank you for tuning in. And thank you for being so engaged in, in this topic.